Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to GTP Keeper Radio. It's Sunday, January 13th, 2019, 9 o'clock Eastern Standard Time. And first podcast of the 2019 season. I'm here with the almost very soon millimeters away from retiring Dr. Bill Stagel. How are you, Bill? Happy New Year, my friend. How are you? I'm doing great. Not as great wow, as you're going to be in 19 a... days, though, right? I have been in such a good mood lately. I don't know why. I, I can't <laughs> figure it out. Does it feel like the weight of the world days. is off of your chest? <laughs> yeah, it's kind of felt like that the last couple of months. Just uh, you get a whole new perspective on on life and what's important and um, the things you can have fun with when you know it's you know, what you're ready to give up is about to come to an end. For those that aren't in the know, tell, tell everyone what's going on in 19 days. Well, after uh, 23 years of being a clinical anesthesiologist in private practice, I am retiring from that uh, profession and moving on uh, to different pastures. Uh, it's going to be uh, a semi-retirement uh but I will be heavily uh, vested still in, in the reptiles. I'm, I'm literally kind of the classic example that, of somebody that has turned uh, turned their passion for a hobby uh, kind of into a, a career now. So that's the way I'm looking at it. Um, I've kind of been double dipping the last couple of years uh, production-wise, um, you know, producing quite a bit of animals to prepare for you know, doing this full time and and having enough animals and enough work to keep me occupied. So, uh, starting in uh, January, I'll actually be vending the NARBC Expo uh, February 15th and 16th uh, here in Arlington. And then, uh, you know, I plan on just continuing to vend primarily shows that are local to me. Uh, you know, two three hour drive, I could probably vend a show every weekend around here. So. Um, I'm really very, very excited about that. That's how I'll be spending most of my time in, in 2019. Uh, there are a lot of people who I, who I am sure are very envious of you being able to do this, Bill. I've been uh, very, very blessed, and it's been a lot of different um, you know, reasons that I've been able to do this. Uh, some of it's been 
patience and hard work and it's been other stuff too like just you know an awesome supportive family that um you know has been able to do all the things that they needed to do uh so i could do the things that i want to do so just uh all the stars kind of lined up i'm i'm just you know i'm still a relatively uh young man and i'm able to now just you know spend the next hopefully a couple of decades in in doing this passion that i've had really for you know, the last 20 years plus. So I'm really, really looking forward to it. Well, congratulations to you. It's well-deserved. Well, thank you very much. Um, you know, this is, this is going to be a great show to start the new year because uh, with yourself and the two guests that we were having on today, you know, the three of you guys are really the foundation of the individuals that introduced and brought me along in the green tree world so i have a lot to be thankful for you three guys in particular i throw you know a couple other names out there christian stewart obviously uh uh you know really supported me and gave me a lot of information we we haven't had christian on the show but um along with him and and you three gentlemen uh you guys were where it all started for me and then i got to meet a bunch of other people like ian who's going to be on on the show tonight for a few minutes as well um but without your guys's uh support and just being really good people, you know, I wouldn't have uh, been able to get into the green trees, certainly uh, like I, I would have wanted to in, in the level that I'm at now. So appreciate you guys. Yeah, the feeling is mutual. You know, he's been a great friend to me and always uh, someone to bounce things off of and talk to you about difficult things that we often encounter with this hobby. Um, Right. So, yeah, I, I, I think you're in for a, a whirlwind of uh, an adventure with the, with reptiles. It's going to be fun. I'm, I'm very excited to see, you know, now that you're able to focus on it full time, what, you know, you've already produced some amazing animals, but, you know, what's going to happen now that it's, you know, this is going to be your focus and you're able to really, you know, nail down things and, you know, be able yeah, to yeah. spend more time in the reptile room, read what's going on with your animals. It's gonna be it's gonna be a fun trip. Yeah, I I, I agree 100. percent I just uh, I'm ecstatic about it. I can't wait for it. I want to do so many other things, and that includes being more, you know, active in the community, uh, whether it's through social media or attending every carpet fest possible. Uh, you know, I want to be more involved and. You know, I feel like I'm fairly well involved as it is, but I want to be even more so. Uh, and, you know, your passion like mine is to get new people introduced uh, into green trees uh, because it's something that I avoided for 10 years because of lack of information and misinformation. And, you know, it's one of the great things that I love about working with green trees is introducing them to new people. So Nice. Very nice. Well, speaking of um, ways to I, introduce people. Yes. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say I, I wanted to get a rundown of how your new year went real quick before I bring our guests on. But before I do sure. that, I wanted to mention real quick, um, I don't know if you've noticed or not, but Eric has been doing a lot of work on the Marilia Picture of the Week uh, Facebook yes. uh, group. And I want to just let the listeners know out there, uh, I think this is a pretty – heavily chondro listened audience um but if you're not a member of the facebook group marilia picture of the week uh you need to join that eric has been uploading a lot of 
um, uh, files about Morelia species, not just carpets, not just green trees, uh, but other stuff. Uh, he's uploaded recently a couple of great articles. He, he uploaded one about the husbandry and uh, re, uh, reproductive uh, husbandry of rough scale pythons. He did the same thing with diamond pythons. So make sure you're uh, you're a member of that group. A lot of good stuff over there for sure. Yes. So now, uh, before we bring these guys on, tell tell us tell the listeners about your new year. You've had uh, at least three ovulations in your green trees that that I know about. I've had well, I've had two, and I've got another. I have another female. She's uh, she's not feeding, and she's definitely something's going on, you know, reproductively with her. So. You know, we got my fingers crossed. She continues uh, on the path of progression, and I get an ovulation here maybe by the end of the month. So three three females for me, hopefully. And uh, I had one female nice. have a pre lay shed today. Um, so curious to see, you know, with chondros, and it's with anything you're working with, obviously, you know, there's no guarantee you're getting fertile eggs. So each little step is a hurdle. So, you know, you sure. go through the, you know, you do the pairing, you, you follow, you know, the follicles grow, you witness an ovulation, you have a good pre-lay shed, then the next thing is let's make sure the female, you know, lays the eggs without any problems and that the eggs are fertile and then they, you know, progress through the incubation phase. So it's all these little hurdles that you kind of set yourself up for to to get over and hopefully each one, you clear each one as smoothly as the one before and and everything turns out okay. Isn't that the truth? Or I know you saw this uh, Facebook thread about somebody had brought up the point about candling eggs and, you know, when yeah. to candle, how many times do you candle? And I put up there that I was just like so superstitious, you know, when my females grab it, I just, you know, I try to look the other way. I don't think about it. People will <laughs> say, I want to be on, I want to be on the waiting list. And I'm like, you're out of your mind, you know, Right. Nothing's, you know, you know, we're not even close to having any babies on the ground. There's no waiting list, you know. And then the, the eggs get laid, and I just, you know, I just try not to think about them. I try not to mess with them, and I just, I'm just real superstitious about it, I guess. Right. Yep. Same way. Yep. <laughs> I, you know, the female lays them. I, you know, do my thing. I look at them briefly, see if they look like they're fertile, and I put them in the the egg box, and I just don't. Don't mess with them until, you know, the either they go bad or the babies hatch. So, you know, I don't right. handle right. them. I don't, you know, I don't, I don't change out things. I just kind of they're in yeah. there and they just rock and roll, and I'm just going to leave them be. And you know, yeah, they either they rock happens, or they roll, happens. one or the other. <laughs> yeah, right. And hopefully they don't roll too early, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> All right, my friend. Well, enough of our. All right. Silly banter. Let's, yeah. Let's get the big boys. So we'll we'll bring uh, Ian's going to come on and chat with us. Um, if you're new to the hobby, there's some great things, um, great events going around the country are called Carpet Fests, and they're they're regionally throughout the U.S. and there's some international ones. I think there's one in the U.K. coming up, um, but it's a great way to meet people in the hobby. That's not at a show venue with, you know, the pressure that comes with, you know, vending the show and trying to talk to people. It's often challenging to 
make the really good connections with someone. And um, Carpet Fest kind of allows reptile people, I guess, not just people who keep carpets, but just to get together and share experiences, you know, share an adult beverage, laugh at each other. Um, and uh, Ian, um, welcome to the show, Ian. Hey, guys. How you doing? Happy New Year. Hey, Happy New Year. Thanks for coming on the show. Hey, Happy, happy New Year, Ian. And congratulations, Bill. 19 days. Not that anyone's counting, right? <laughs> I've got a countdown on, on, on my um, phone, but yeah, I'm counting a little bit. <laughs> yeah, I think I saw you posted one on Facebook, and I was thinking, do you really need to know how many seconds until you retire? <laughs> you couldn't just do days. You've got to rub it in everyone else's no. face, like down to the second. No, I need to know the seconds. It's very important. <laughs> well, tell so, us, tell us about the carpet fest, buddy. I mean, yeah, yeah. I was there last year. You yep. know that. Yep, yep. So you know, I think, uh, buddy, as you hit on uh, the the first thing is the fact that the name is a little bit misleading. So it is called our chapter is called the Southeast Carpet Fest, but it's really more more of a reptile fest. If you think of just kind of like a big barbecue get together with a bunch of reptile people and um, you just basically talk reptiles the whole time while enjoying some good food and uh, maybe an adult beverage or two. So uh, we've got the Southeast Carpet Fest coming up and uh, if you want, I can give you all the details. Yes, please do. All right. So this year, Southeast Carpet Fest 2019, um, we do have some sponsors this year, so I want to make sure to give them a shout out as well. Uh, so this year's event is going to be sponsored by Desiree and Forrest Fanning at Cold-Blooded Cafe, so appreciate their support. Also sponsoring this year is uh, Feedersource.com, Robin and his whole team over at Ship Your Reptiles, and also the guys over at the Herpticulture podcast. So they're all helping support our event this year, so we really appreciate their support. And uh, we are still looking for a couple more sponsors, so if you're interested, go ahead and uh, be sure to hit us up and, and get in touch and let us know. But this year's event is going to be on February 9th. That's Saturday. It starts at 2 p.m. and it's going to be at the Terrestrial and Arboreal Facility in Melrose, Florida. So uh, that's just outside Gainesville. For those of you who don't know, it's uh, North Florida. And uh, we're being graciously hosted by Pia and Cody Bartolini. So uh, they have uh, offered to let us come invade their house and check out their collection and have Carpet Fest. So thank you to Pia and Cody. Um, some other details, if you are planning to attend Carpet Fest, uh, it's a free event to av attend, but we do ask that you go over to the event Facebook page and just make sure you go ahead and click that you're attending because we're trying to get a rough head count. And also your price of admission is that you have to bring something. So you've got to get a hold of me or one of the other people that's on the planning committee and um, kind of like a giant potluck. So your price of admission is you have to bring something, but you got to get in touch with us to find out what we need or, or what you need to bring. So uh, if you're planning on coming, just go ahead and get a hold of one of us. And uh, if you're traveling in from out of town, there's plenty of hotels in the Gainesville area. There's also Airbnbs available in Melrose, Keystone Heights, and Gainesville. And uh, Pia and Cody live on a big chunk of land. Um, so they've also said that people, if they want to bring a tent, they're more than welcome to pitch a tent and camp on site. So um, also as far as logistics for travel, if you are traveling in from out of town, people are asking about airports. So the closest airport is actually Gainesville, but that's a smaller regional airport. It's about 25 minutes away from the venue. 
So if you want to, you can fly there, but probably a little bit better pricing on flights and more availability would be Jacksonville, which is about an hour and a half away, or Orlando, which is about two hours away. But either way, obviously, you'll need to rent a car. And then if you're coming in from out of town, also get a hold of me or one of the other people on the planning committee because we are going to have a kind of just like an informal get-together Friday night at one of the local Gainesville breweries. So uh, kind of a pre-Carpet Fest kickoff. And I think, Bill, last year we, we all went out that Friday night before Carpet Fest as right. well. So um, right, right. reach out and we'll let you know where and when. Um, what else we got? Uh, so a couple of other things associated with Carpet Fest. And um, one is we do have a Southeast Carpet Fest shirt campaign. And that, um, thank you to Jeff Frederick for the logo once again. He does awesome artwork. And uh, he did our logos. This year we have six colors and styles, short sleeve, long sleeve, hoodies, dark colors, light colors. I'm sure someone will complain that we don't have something, but we try to give a variety. But the key on the shirt is that uh, that all benefits U.S. Arc. And uh, our goal is 100 shirts. And last time I checked, we were at 95. So we're getting really close to our goal. We'd like to hit 100. Um, you know, so we want to go ahead and support U.S. Arc. And that campaign ends in three days. So uh, make sure you get your order in now. And um, we want to make sure that we support U.S. Arc. Uh, maybe uh, between Bill, you, and Gary, maybe you can get Leonard Williams to, to order a shirt and give us a shout-out on uh, social media wearing a Carpet Fest shirt. But, uh, you got them in, anyhow, you that, have them in four, do you have them in 4XL? Uh, we got them in 4XL. I've got people ordering them international. Someone uh, asked today if it could be shipped to Germany. I think we had one person from the U.K., Stephanie O'Malley, ordered a shirt. And somebody from, I think, Australia also ordered a shirt. So uh, we've gone international. And uh, with the Carpet Fest guys over in the U.K., you know, who knows what kind of shenanigans are possible. All right. Well, put me down. I'll buy Leonard a shirt. Put me down a 4XL for Leonard. Awesome. Awesome. <laughs> okay. So, um but, you know, it's, it's all for a good cause, so um, the shirts are all for U.S. ARC, and uh, we do want to meet that, that goal of 100 so we can, we can give back to U.S. ARC. And then the other big thing that we have going on is the Southeast Carpet Fest auction. So for those of you who are familiar with that, last year between the shirts and the auction, we raised about $12,000. Uh, this year we've decided to do things just a little different. The shirts will be for U.S. ARC like last year, but we made the auction for a different cause. And so... This year, the auction is going to benefit four U.S. research universities who are studying nidovirus and pythons. And so we're going to take the proceeds from the auction and split it four ways and, and help try to accelerate some of the learning um, and research being done on nidovirus and pythons. And, and that gives back to the whole community. Um, so that is currently uh, up and live. The first batch of items, the first 66 items are live now. And the auction format is going to be an online auction, and then it will end with a live finish at the event on February 9th. So if you really want an item, either you've got to bid it up high or you've got to come to the event or you've got to find someone who's going to the event to bid for you. Um, but we've got a huge number of items. Last year we only had around 80 items. This year we've posted, I think, 66 so far, and we have around another 80 yet to post. And some of them are big names, wow. uh, a lot of vouchers from big breeders, Steve Volk went big. He donated a $1,000 voucher towards any of his Amazon wow. basins. We've got wow. cages. We've got rodents. We've got herp stats. We've got artwork. We've got shirts. We've got vouchers. I mean, literally, there is, it's just unbelievable how generous the community has been. And uh, we're almost a little overwhelmed with how many items we have. So 
be patient. We'll be posting more items during the week, but the first 66 are up. And the last tally I did, we've raised about $5,000 so far. And uh, so nice. we'd like to see that number grow considerably between now and the event. And like I said, it's, it's a way for us to not only give back to the reptile community, but very specifically to give back to the Morelia Python green tree community that, you know, is, is looking for answers to nidovirus and, Hopefully this will jumpstart and accelerate that research and that learning to benefit everybody. So, so if, you, if you're sitting at your computer listening to the show right now or you're on your phone, just go scroll through the items and, and bid some stuff up. There's, there's a lot of good stuff. And like I said, we'll be adding more, and that will all come to a head at the event on February 9th. Wonderful. Um, I will say that um, every Copper Fest I've been to, the food has been very good. So, uh, you know, kind of I'm sure you guys are going to uphold that tradition. And, um, you know, it's just, you know, if you're thinking about going and, you know, you have some hesitation, just go. You will not regret it. You'll have a great time. There's good people all around. Um, and, you know, Bill, you know, we've been to several. What do you, what do you think about these these events? You know, we we've talked about this every time. You know, you're roughing, you're roughly talking about the cost of a plane ticket and, you know, a night in a hotel. So five or five hundred and fifty dollars, and I I assure you, it will be money well spent. I mean, it's just the people that you get to meet there and uh, the experiences that you get, the stories and the information. Um, you know, go to one, you'll be hooked, and you'll start, uh, you know, you'll start going back to either your regional one or like I've started to do, you know, go to non-regional carpet fest. It's it's really a lot of fun. Yep, good deal. I know last year at the Northeast Carpet Fest, we had two of the three authors from the complete carpet python uh, just there hanging yep. out, talking to people. And uh, there was a, a, a very young person who was kind of, you know, starstruck by the fact that he was able to get his book signed by two of the three authors just be, just because he was able to come to this event and you know he had no idea yeah. they would be here but it was uh it's a it's a good experience for everyone and it's a great Absolutely. great fundraiser yep and i'm hearing a lot of people from out of town are making plans to come in i hear uh your cohorts over on uh the npr side it, it sounds like at least uh the hobbit will be coming but i don't think the sasquatch is going to make it down <laughs> Uh, apparently he doesn't like warm weather. He's hibernating up north, but uh, yeah, but gotcha. you know, melt. there there will be people from out of state there, and it's just a great opportunity to meet people, like you said, and and get out from behind your computer and actually network and meet people. And the other thing is, Pia and Cody have an amazing venomous collection. So for those of you who are into to hots, uh, they keep not only green trees and some other assorted things, uh, and I think crocodilians and tortoises, but but they've got a pretty incredible. Uh, venomous collection as well that'll be pretty cool for everyone to check out very nice ian thanks okay. for coming well, on buddy right. yep yeah th thanks for having me on i'll let you guys get to the main event i'm looking forward to hearing uh what gary and marshall have to say so uh have a good show guys and uh come out support us at carpet fest and hope to see you guys there thank you All right. All right. Good words. Yeah, absolutely. That's going to it's going to be a good event.
Um, I've got a condor going to that event too. So if someone's looking for a nice condor, you might be able to pick that up, Bill. Um, <laughs> and then I'll tell you, like to buy the condors from me. I'm always the default, you know. I'm always the the default uh, Buddy Bashemi uh, condor purchaser. So believe me, it will not go right. uh, not go unsold. Gotcha. So um, we have uh, Gary Shivino and Marshall Mendez here with us this evening. And um, Bill, you kind of came up with the idea of having both of these guys on the show. And um, when we were going back and forth a little bit about a topic, Gary Schiavino was like, hey, you know, there's a lot of new people that are, are into the keeping chondros, and they have, you know, they're, they're searching for answers. Um, they need to maybe have a place where they can go or they can be put in the right direction, or maybe they just need to hear it on our show. So um, that was the basis for the show. So, you know, thanks, Gary, for your great input and, and insight. Welcome to the show. Um, Gary, can you give us a little bit of background about your condor keeping and your condor collection? I don't really want to say anything yet, but I'm going to my applause. <laughs> hey, can we talk about condor uh, carpet fest some more? Is that possible? Sure. I knew that was coming. <laughs> I knew that. I mean, was I was on the fence until I heard there were potluck dinners and camping. I mean, I, I'm in. I'm, wait, I'm not on the air yet, am I? <laughs> so, Gary, are you coming down Thursday? Okay, I'm kidding. It sounds like, sounds like fun. I'm totally kidding. What's that? Are you going to make a whole week of it? Maybe just come down and spend the whole week down there? I'm dre- I'm, I have my this shirt on now, actually. So, no, it, listen, it's an awesome cause. I'm just kidding because it's just fun to talk. But, no, listen, there's. Nido virus, a lot of great stuff going on, a lot of great fundraising, and I think it's, I mean, I can't believe how much it's grown over the years, and it's uh, its pretty amazing, so it's all good stuff. But anyway, thanks for having me, guys, and Happy New Year to everybody. Happy New Year. You're welcome. Yeah. And Bill, we have a lot in common. I'll also be uh, retiring in 19 years. <laughs> no, 19 days. Oh, days. 19, oh, then we have nothing in common. I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah. My wife you gets still enough have Amazon boxes delivered every day. Believe me, I'm not retiring for a long time. Every day I come home, it looks like a warehouse outside my garage. Well, you also have dependents in the house that I do not have. I do. I do. But listen, congratulations. That's awesome. I'm really happy for you. So Thanks, we have friend. a lot more time to go to more Carpet Fest now, which is great, you know. So. That's, that's, that's my plan. Carpet Fest yep. at Tinley, that's how I roll. Yep. Um, hey, buddy, how are you? Hey, Marshall. I'm doing great. I don't think I heard Marshall say anything yet. How's it going? There he is. There he is. I, I mean up, this guys? sincerely. I was I was going to say the three of you guys. I mean this sincerely. Is the you know as much as I have passion for the animals, uh, you three guys specifically are a huge part of me. Just always wanting to stay in the hobby. I mean that. I mean uh, I just think you're. I've known you guys for a long time and. Uh, just personally and everything with the animals and you're uh you're good guys and uh i mean that and i love when i go to a show and i see one of you there it's like a security blanket so it's great to be on with all three of you oh appreciate that yeah that's yeah awesome. me too you know what we didn't say in the intro is in and what we should have is the intro music uh for jeff yeah. keeper radio was provided by marshall mendez Oh, that's great. Yeah, that's right. I've kind of forgotten about it until uh, until I heard it. 
when when it when it came on a few minutes ago. Was, you, uh, you you composed that a long time ago. Do you realize how long this the show's been active now? Yeah, I was trying to think. It's got to be like uh, six or seven years, maybe. That's, five years? Is that right? No, it's more than five, five years. Yep. Yeah, five, five years. Uh huh. Oh, it's amazing. Yeah. Yep. Well, well, you know, we only do three or four shows a year, Bill. <laughs> the time flies like that. <laughs> oh, we don't. Do at least six. Uh, yeah. Gary <laughs> um, has had his way to only do one. Right. Right. He'd be the guest every year. I love it. All right. Let's get it going, man. I can't wait for the show. I, um, you know, we always, seems like, are are able to find really good guests that um, have good information and communicate well. And uh, I just knew when we booked this one that, Man, it was just going to be good times, and the conversation and the facts and the fun were going to roll. So let's get on it. Let's do it. Let's do it. So wherever you guys want to jump in, whatever you – what do you think? What do you, what do you want to start with? Um, do you, Gary or Marshall, do you want to talk a little bit about, like, your condor background? What do you keep specifically condor-wise, or you just want to roll right into the topics? Sure. Yeah, well, I, want to hear the, yeah. I want to hear the intro. Yeah, me too. Gary, you go first. All right. I'll, 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 yeah, Gary, go ahead. Go ahead, Gary. Okay. Um, yeah, so um, thanks again, guys, for having me. I, my uh, foray into snakes, I'll make a long story short. I was actually thinking about this today in pr- uh, preparation for the show, but uh, I'm 51 years old. I got my first snake in uh, 1981 when I was 13. It was a Burmese and 1984, I got another one, and then in 1986, uh, which was quite some time ago, I actually bred Burmese for the first time. It was, I think it was about 18, 19 years old back then. And I had a mentor by the name of Ernie Wagner. I don't know if you guys know that name. He's out in Seattle. Um, just a really nice guy who just saw me as a, just, just for whatever reason, decided really to help me out a lot. Actually, I didn't get my first chondro until uh, 93, which was, uh, according to my math, about 26 years ago. And I bought two chondros from Pete Kahl. I drove to his house. I paid seven fifty apiece. They were both males. One died within a few weeks just because this is before heat tape and radiant heat panels and everything was light bulbs on a dimmer. And um, mm-hmm. so, yeah, that was back in 93. I got the first chondros. And it, what's funny is a name you guys will all know is John Martin. He actually built my first cages for me back in 1993. Wow. And, wow. Um, yeah, it's pretty crazy. And then actually, um, it wasn't until 2008 where I actually bred chondros for the first time. I, I never not kept chondros between 1993 when I first got them in 2008. But to tell you the truth, I really didn't have, well, if I'm being honest with you, it was just very intimidating back then, even try breeding because we were still learning so much. But uh, most of my pleasure came in the way of brokering. I just really brought in a lot of animals and I bought out a lot of people's collections and I was buying and selling a lot of stuff. And I know that's frowned upon today as a broker or a flipper um, or jobber, but you know what? I, I did it pretty well. I put a lot of amazing animals in a lot of people's collections. But, uh, yeah, that's really it for me. Um, I grew up in New Jersey, and um, I had the privilege of growing up pretty close to 
Pennsylvania, and um, if you guys have read the books, either Lizard King or Lost World, they grew up right near Martin's Aquarium, where guys like you know Hank Moltwar were bringing some of the most you know first diamond pythons in the country. So I had access to a lot of animals, and uh, I will tell you, at 51 years old, keeping these animals as long as I have, I just I love it. I eat, sleep, drink, snake. Um, you have a wife and a daughter, which are you know it's all my priorities are in order, but. I really do love the animals. I have a passion for them. And as I get older and the longer I stay in it, i really starting to really appreciate um, and embrace the responsibility we all have to uh, breed these animals in captivity because I see what's happening and I see animals that we were able to get years ago we're just simply not able to get. And if we think that's not going to happen with chondros, we're delusional. It is going to happen. And, uh, you know, guys like the four of us on the phone and a lot of other folks uh, who are coming up in chondros and guys who are out there doing a lot of work with them. It's our responsibility to breed them in captivity and keep it going because they will not be imported for, I would think, in less than 20, 25 years. It's going to be tough to bring in chondros. That's, that's, my, uh, that's my prediction. Wow. So. Wow. Interesting. Yeah. Very, very good words. I had not thought about that. Um, Gary, do you think that's because – um, they're just not going to be available. You think the natural population is going to be decimated, or, or, or what are your what's your reasoning in that? I think the reasoning is I, I know you guys got a chance to see Ari speak about Bull and I, um, you know, over at the NRABC show, NARBC show, and mm-hmm. I think it's deforestation, uh, logging, just destroying the forest. Um, just wild collection of animals, wild collecting adults, even though it's illegal. And, I mean, how long can nature sustain us taking animals out of the wild and uh, taking away their, um, their land and environment? I mean, it's, uh, we're, I mean, to go back to Bull and I for a second, we know that's going to happen. I mean, Ari spoke to that firsthand. He saw these areas being burnt down and, and where these nests were so um, prevalent year after year. He saw areas where they were completely burned down, where fires just got out of hand because they were just, you know, burning down. You know, they were, um, I forget what he called that, buddy, when you intentionally light a place on fire, a control burn in areas and, yep. and logging yep. and deforestation. And, uh, you know, so we're seeing it with the bull and I, and I just can't imagine it's, and that's, it's not a marketing thing where I'm trying to get the price of chondros up, believe me, I wish that was what it was, but I think it's just the, the reality of it is, uh, you know, I think we're seeing it now. I mean, a few years ago, we were, there were like 700 babies being brought in by Bushmaster every year. I don't know what was brought in this year, but I'm starting to see larger animals coming in now all the time that are readily available mm-hmm. in terms of chondros. Mm-hmm. And I know they're, quote-unquote, yeah. they're supposed to be held-back babies, but the reality is they're not. They're, they're wild-caught animals that they're exporting, and they need to they need to export them under the guise of captive-bred babies because it's it's been illegal to export chondros out of Indonesia for quite some time. So they 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 export them under the guise of these were you know animals we held back or captive bred, but it's just it's just not accurate. I know it's not accurate. So yeah, so I think when I come up with a number of twenty twenty five years, I hope it's that long. But I really do think um, we got to figure these things out better than no. I think we have the breeding thing down, but when these animals get sick, I think there's a fifty percent chance they're going to be in our collections in a in a month once they get sick. So I think we've come a long way, and I think we have just still a long way to go. And it comes down to. Uh, People just keeping and breeding the animals and figuring them out, and that's that's what I plan to do. So, good, good deal. Okay, Marshall. Well, I'll I'll jump in. Yeah, I'll jump in. I uh, uh, first of all, Bill, congrats on your retirement. That's awesome. Thank you. Got to get that in. Thank you. Thank you. Um, 
like most of you guys and probably most of the people listening, I started uh, keeping snakes when I was very young, maybe six or seven years old. Um, had them pretty much my whole life. Uh, had this, got my first uh, chondro in 98, which was uh, right about the time I you know, got out of school and started making a little money. And so that's kind of when I considered the start of my current collection and uh, basically started it off. Um, uh, well, let me back up a minute. When I was, when I was growing up, I lived in, in uh, Tampa for a few years and there was a guy down there by the name of Joe Fossey, uh, you know, in the Southeast Reptile Exchange. And um, if you go back on a lot of, a lot of chondro pedigrees, uh, you'll see his name. Uh, you'll see his name on there a few times. And I saw my first chondros uh, over at his uh, facility when I was a kid and uh, was just, you know, immediately taken aback and hooked. And, um, you know, unfortunately back then they were, you know, just uh, uh, prohibitively expensive for, you know, for, for a kid. Um, so never, never did get any until, uh, I was a bit older, but, um, so yeah, 98 started, started this collection. I think I bought about 10 neonates over the course of, uh, over the course of maybe, you know, uh, two years and, um, you know, the appropriate caging and, uh, just raised those animals up and, um, bred them and have just kind of built the, the collection now just, uh, from you know, from the proceeds off off the babies from those first uh, original ten animals, and nice. um, you know, I've uh, never you know uh, kind of put myself out there financially. It's all kind of just paid for itself, which is which has been nice. Um, I've been you know, I'm not going to say there's no skill involved, but there's definitely a lot of luck, um, you know, and and. Yep. Uh, so you gotta you gotta be you gotta be on your uh, on your game and you gotta have uh, you gotta have luck. So uh, so the collection now is uh, chondro wise probably about twenty adults plus or minus, uh, mainly focused around my albino project and I've still got some some calico stuff and some tiger stripe stuff. Um, most of most of the stuff is is kind of centered around the albino project, hoping to. Uh, things are looking promising for maybe uh, seeing seeing another albino or two this year. We'll see. And um, you know, as far as other things, you know, I've got got some emerald tree boas and uh, got to have some ball pythons. Got some garter snakes, some uh, Mexican black king snakes. Just you know, little assortment of things. But uh, chondros are always uh, always the number one in my heart. So. Uh, so yeah, I, I think I think Buddy's the only one of the four of us that uh, don't keep at least a few royal pythons. Yeah, <laughs> this is true. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Buddy, out, man. such an outcast. Such an outcast. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, like yeah. like uh, Gary was saying, you know, I've, I've, when I started, I was lucky enough to have a couple of pretty good mentors, uh, Rico Walder uh, was very you know close close friend he lived uh he only lived about two and a half three hours from me so i you know would went up to his house quite a few times and even you know before that trooper walsh was uh very uh kind and open uh to me stayed at his place uh you know back and you know visited his place a couple times during the 
uh, original Chondro Fest back in the 90s, and uh, Eugene Bissett was a uh, really, really big influence on me. Um, Dave and Tracy Barker, even though they aren't uh, necessarily known as Chondro people, um, they, you know, they've, they've produced a lot of Chondros, and uh, they were, you know, very helpful to me um, when I was first starting off, um, just as far as uh, information goes. Uh, I never have met them. Really, I think maybe I've met them at a show, but uh, never been to their place or anything. But uh, as far as, you know, mentors are definitely on the list as, as well. Um, not some people you, you know, generally think of as Chondro people, but uh, but they're awesome. Yeah, they were, uh, and, and uh, Buddy and Gary would know much more than I, but they were really ground floor people into the into the Chondro and, you know, introducing and working with Chondros in the United States in the 70s and 80s. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Chondros and, I mean, really any type of python, um, you know. Australian, especially. Uh, yeah, the first animals I, had, I purchased from Pete Kyle, actually produced by Dave and Tracy, the first Chondros I bought, and... And that was in '93. So yeah, they were yeah them and Trooper and Eugene. They were they were on they were on the game. Yeah. And right. Speaking of Bull and I earlier, I'm 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 pretty sure Tracy was one of the first uh, people to produce Bull and I. Uh, if I remember correctly, her and, and uh, maybe it was some kind of a partnership with Pete Call, if I'm not mistaken. And they had uh, imported a gravid female and yeah. Um, yeah. you know hatched hatched the eggs. So I don't, I'm not sure quite quite sure when that was, but I know it was a while ago. That's actually documented, I think, in Ari's book. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Yeah, it's a beautiful book. I've got it. I haven't had a chance to, to read it yet. Most of the time, I, I buy books and just sit them on the, <laughs> sit them on the uh, bookshelf, I guess, for, for when I'm retired like Bill. I'll have some time to read them. <laughs> read them. <laughs> yeah. Right now, I just look at the pictures and uh, put them aside. But <laughs> <laughs> well, that was a good introduction, Gary. You didn't get a chance uh, uh, in there to, uh, to tell the listeners what you work with uh, Condro Wise. You know, I'm really into the locality stuff. I, I'm pretty much is, I'm into the Arfaks and the Manaquaries. That's really my focus. Um, that's what it's been for the last few years. Um, you know, I made a decision that um, I don't. I don't know how to say on this. I don't make it. Uh, basically, you know, I made a decision years ago. It's like I, you know, in 2013, I actually hatched out over 100 babies between uh, Aru's and and uh, Manaquaries and Arfax, and it was a bit overwhelming. And at that point, I said to myself, you know what? I don't. I really don't want to breed for the sake of breeding. I really want to focus on what you know. I, after doing it as long as we all have, it's just I want to just really focus on stuff I want to not only breed, but stuff I want to keep. And I I love that Highland stuff and the Manaquaries and the Arfax, and that's where I settled. I mean, I might stray from that, but overall that's my focus, and that will remain my focus. So, Yeah, some beautiful animals. And, and Gary, people, although you've chosen to to stay locality-specific, there have certainly been a lot of people that have taken your animals and uh, put them into some incredible yeah. design or product uh, projects. Yeah. Yeah, which are awesome. Yeah, and, and actually, one of, I think the only non-locality animal I have here, Bill, is one of yours. So, um, yeah, it's a, that's a gorgeous animal in its, in its own right. So, um, nice. Yeah. One one of the things that that, that Gary just said that um, you know experience has led me to is that you know you've got to keep what you like and you got to work with what you like. 
Um, you know, I've, I've worked with a bunch of stuff over the years and, you know, here in the last, uh, I guess really since my, you know, children were born and haven't, you know, just had unlimited time to, to, uh, uh you know, spend in the, in the snake room, um, you know, really pared it down to just things that, you know, really make you, make you, uh, say, wow, every time you look at them, um, that's, that's really important. Um, so whether it be a, you know, a species or a bloodline or a, you know, whatever, um, you just got to make sure that you get that, uh, you know, get that feeling every time you see the thing. Um, that's, that's, that's the, that's what's the most fun about it for me. Yeah, absolutely. Quality over quantity always. Absolutely. Hey, Marshall, just to let you know, I've got a, I have a female who's got some Versace blood, and she's one of my gravid animals this year. So just thought oh, I'd really? let you know nice. that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll keep you updated as things progress with that animal, but um, yeah, pretty excited. Awesome. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. He, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of his offspring out there. I, I I added it up one time a couple of years ago, and it was uh, it was over a hundred. Um, and that was you know there's been a couple of years since then. So he's been he's been a pretty uh, prolific animal. Uh, he's 17 and, years and, old now. And and Marshall, I'll just add if you uh, counted up the number of Jaeger offspring out there, I guarantee you it's double that. Um, really. And you're. Wow. And your boy Jaeger is performed for me again this year. I've got a girl that's gravid by him. Um, so yeah, he's he's just well, a beast. That's awesome, and that's uh, he was. Uh, I'm trying to remember what 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 bloodline he was from. Is got I think he's pretty pretty got some from some old school blood in there besides the uh, yeah. Versace. Yeah. Uh, yeah, he was a uh, um, Tony Montagna Hillary yeah. Webb product okay okay wow yeah so he's got all kinds of good yeah. good uh good genes in there yeah yeah still kicking it nice yeah, very nice versace 17 this year and it looks like he might actually get the job done with at least uh you know three maybe four females this year so, so crazy. Uh, yeah he's, he's been a good one wow very nice Buddy, All I know right. we, um, but buddy, you um, like you do most of the shows. You created a, a really brief outline, and I was glad to see that you put our first topic first because I think it's probably, in the grand scheme of things, the most important uh, one on our agenda tonight, and that is just simply where do you get your knowledge and your information? Um, because it seems like it has become so important now to get chondro information you know whether you're a, a a seasoned keeper or a complete noob you know with all this social media out there all these facebook groups and pages um boy you just you the source is so important and so i'm glad you put that you know first on the agenda and so maybe we can kind of open that up to maybe to, to marshall first um, and then, you, you know, buddy, you can have some parting thoughts after Gary gives his input about um, the legitimacy of information that people are actually uh, seeing out there. What do you think, Marshall? Sounds good. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, 
you know, I'm I'm a member of, of all the groups on Facebook and uh sometimes you just read things and it's like, man, you know, like where where is this guy coming from? Um but just to kind of kind of step back, you know, uh back uh when I got into it, it was pretty much word of mouth. I mean there was a few uh, you know, or just knowledge that was directly passed on from you know, the breeder you bought the animal from, or, um, just other, you know, speaking to other chondro, chondro heads. Um, and, uh, since then, now there's some, you know, there's pretty good books out there. There's, uh, the MVF and certain, you know, certainly a, uh, uh, huge as far as getting knowledge and information out there, uh, kind of, kind of wish that uh, things would go back to the NBF, even though I'm guilty of yep. not, uh, you know, not uh, uh, <laughs> yeah. yep. participating much anymore. It's just, you know, everybody's yep. so so busy and you just got your phone in your hand all the time and, it's, you know, clicking on Facebook or Instagram or whatever. Yep. Uh, you're, you're just doing that and you don't really have to think about it, um, e- even though I would say the quality of information is uh, is even though quantity is, 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 is more and there's, you know, a lot more people giving their opinions, um, you got to be careful of who you listen to and, you know, where did they get their information from. And um, uh, nowadays with me, you know, it's, it's a lot of, uh, a lot of it has, has been just kind of experience and tend to go with my gut a lot uh, on things, even if, even if it's some, you know, a topic, maybe if it's something that I've, even after doing it for so long, things come up all the time that, you know, maybe you've never had to deal with before or, you know, a few other people, you know, there's not a whole lot of uh, of uh, information out there about whatever certain thing you're looking for is. And, uh, you know, one of the things that I guess comes with experience is um, not being afraid to just go with what your gut's telling you to do. Yeah, but you're right. You've got to have that experience. Um, and, you know, unfortunately, most people that keep chondros don't have 20 plus years of experience like you do to go with their guts. Um, right. Or, you know, the vast array of people in this hobby that you know can provide you, you know, with legitimate information. Um, you know, so so where does that leave the relatively new person um, and I ask that because, you know, one of the things that comes to my mind is there's got to be a little bit of onus on that person, you know, to do a little research and to realize just because it's on Facebook, it isn't true, um, and to vet your sources. Sure. Yeah, well, I mean, when I first started, I, I pretty much would would read anything and everything I could get my hands on, talk to whoever I could, and um there's really not going to be really any better substitute than taking all of that information and then drawing, uh, going to say drawing your own conclusions, but uh, kind of kind of picking what what things make sense to you um, from from a you know, from a reputable source of information or sources because uh, different things are you know you talk to ten different people you're you're likely to get ten different. Uh, answers on a a certain question and that's 10 people that have experience and know what they're doing and obviously have been successful but they just have different uh different ways of going about things and um but you know you don't want you don't want to be taking that advice from somebody who uh is just either has read it or regurgitating information that they've read from somewhere else or just doesn't have the uh, shouldn't really be given advice yeah. 
and, and there's a lot of that that happens on on social media, Facebook in particular. Uh, and and the other problem with Facebook is, you know, the the cataloging of the information. Um, right. You know, in the in, in the app, yep. you could always go and do a search or whatever, and you can still do that to some degree, I guess, in the groups. But it it just doesn't seem to be that effective for me. Whenever I do try to uh, try to look something up. You know, I want to I want to get Gary's in, input on this, um, but you know, of all the sources that we've talked about, it's hard to get away from the fact that you know there's a couple of really good books out there on chondros, and um, you know if you just had, um, uh, you know, the complete chondro or the more complete chondro, and you had the uh, newer book that came out by um, Justin Terry Phillips, you know, if you just had those two pieces of information in your arsenal. You know, that's that's about eighty eighty percent of what you would need, and, and you know, and then just get a mentor to, to run stuff by, and you know, that's where I would start. Yeah, I agree with that, Bill. Totally. Go ahead, Gary. I was say, yep. No, I was going to say, buddy, that um, yeah. First off, I don't envy anybody new coming into Condros. Um, it's you know, people we've all been accused of keeping chondros. We think our animals are so difficult compared to other you know voids to keep. But the reality is they are a very specialized animal. I mean, there's not an animal in any of our collections we haven't looked at. We've had issues with, and I say to myself, Wow, I know if this animal was in the hands of somebody else right now, I know it would die. And I, I don't even right. know if somebody you know because they just don't have the experience. It might be a simple little modification. They don't have the experience. Um, and it's how do you translate that knowledge into, you know, into somebody else's collection? Like, how do you help them? And it's, it's, it's difficult to do. But to get back to your original question, where does somebody go for, for help these days? I, I hope I'm giving credit to the right people. I think it was Matt Morris, and there was somebody else. Um, Matt, if, Bill, is Matt in Texas? Is he, he's in Texas. He works yeah. with a lot of yellow. Okay. And I think yeah. him yeah, and Matt, somebody else. Matt's in Austin, and uh, are you talking about the husbandry guide on the MVF? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that, that? Uh, buddy, help me out. Newman. David, David Newman. Newman. Was that David yeah, David and Matt did an amazing job on yeah. that. I mean, I, I would throw yeah. people toward, I mean, not only does it, it provide information, it provides resources where to get uh, materials, you know, for caging and things like that, what you need for a chondro setup. And I, I think that's just, yeah. that's invaluable. That's, um, that's an excellent, right yes, absolutely. Yeah, between that and the books you mentioned, Bill, yeah, um, yeah, and just a lot of reading, and I and I, I guess the thing I would say too is I hope it's not somebody's first snake because you they're, they're, you're going to have issues. I hope it's not their first snake. So hopefully they're bringing some knowledge with them from other animals they kept, even if it's whatever something as basic as perhaps a ball python, just some basic knowledge of animals before they get into chondros. So yeah, ab- absolutely, buddy. What are you? Uh, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean it's uh, that's it. We just you know. You know, the thing of it, of it is that, you know, because the the Facebook, Instagram world is so huge and people are able to create groups and um, it's vast. And so, you know, we, you know, the people who have, you know, a fair amount of experience can't be everywhere all the time. But I think if we can just teach folks, you know, when we have dealings with people, we give them advice uh, trying to point them in the right direction. If we can practice, you know, pointing them in the right direction, hopefully the people we're pointing in the right direction will then in turn point the other people in the right direction. Um, I'm amazed that there's there's some 
fantastic information on the MVF, um, the husbandry site. There's a couple other sites that are pretty good as well. Um, but I always see people, people have a question, and I always see these, like, generalized care sheets that people that are, like, 25 years old that people throw up for, for chondros. And I just kind of, you know, you know, take my palm and, you know, put it on my forehead and say, okay, you know, we, we have to do a little bit better than this. Um, we shouldn't necessarily, you know, throw up the first thing we find if we do a quick Google search trying to help someone. Um, and it's just really just trying to get the information out there to to everyone. And, you know, I guess, I guess evangelize and preach, the, you know, this is where you should go for the information that you're seeking. And, and I guess also not to be afraid to say, hey, you know what, this information was, was pertinent, you know, 20, 25 years ago, but things have changed a little bit, and this is where we, we may need to go, where you may need to go now to uh, seek the information that, that you need. You know, that's a, a good point. And, you know, the Condor community, when I first entered it 10 years ago, was always known, you know, I mean, I was almost afraid to enter it because it was always known as a as a, a relatively tight community and people were not afraid to call other people out on on bullshit. And it's so <laughs> hard to do it's so hard to do that now. I mean, there are certainly more people that are keeping and chondros now than there were even 10 years ago, but it's so hard to call people out on social media as opposed to calling them out on one or two you know, websites and then, you know, getting a, a good discussion going that could be uh, followed by and could be, you know, a lot of good qualified people could put their input in. It just doesn't happen on Facebook. Like you said, buddy, anybody can start a chondro group. And because you're the administrator, people think maybe you know something about chondros, which certainly doesn't have to be the case. Yeah, nothing right. good comes right. out of making nothing. Nothing good comes out of correcting somebody or giving advice on social media on Facebook. Nothing positive comes out of it for the poster. <laughs> it sounds like I'm such a martyr by saying that. It seems that. like it. I know. But every time I do like that, it. I go, "Why? Why am I doing that? You know, why am I doing yeah, that?" And I right. remember honestly, the reason I do it is because I, 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 I love the animals. That's just the reality of it. It's like, wow, I'm not really helping this person. I'm really trying to help this animal. And I just try to try to put that in my head, and that's really what the goal is, right? So. That's why yeah. every yep. once in a while we'll jump in. Yeah, it's tough, man. Yeah, it's, it's tough. Agreed. Yeah. I think, too, a lot of our identity, Bill, you mentioned getting into conjures about 10 years ago, and Marshall will speak to this and Buddy, and uh, but the reality is, um, you know, his name comes up all the time. Uh, and while Rico was somewhat quiet, you know, he was a reserved guy. He um, he was the face of Condros, and uh, he was sincerely liked and loved by everybody, and um, he had a powerful presence, albeit, you know, somewhat reserved and quiet when you didn't know him, and, uh, you know, I think when we lost that that presence, um, I don't know, the, the community kind of just yeah. d- didn't uh, adhere after that, and it's going to take some rebuilding, and that's just what it comes down to, so... Yeah, I, I agree 100%. He uh, he was kind of, uh, uh, say, the glue that held everything together. But he had a, uh, he was just such a such a you know kind and giving guy that would take the time to um, help anybody with a problem. And um, uh, you know, his he's definitely sorely missed. 
Yeah. He he, uh, he obviously he comes up on the show and a lot of other places all the time. Still, you know, now years after his after his death. So let's let's talk about some of the things we've seen that seem to be a fairly common challenge in keeping chondros, and they can be other species as well. But you know, you know, I know chondros really well, so I, I I can't talk about other species like I can about chondro chondros. So let's talk about um, you know someone gets a chondro, they're super excited, it's at the you know, get it to their place. They set it up, and then they try to feed it, and it doesn't eat. Let's let's talk about uh, how you guys, how, you know, how do you manage uh, an animal that just won't eat for you, um, or how do you coach someone that's had this that's having this experience um, through the process of getting an animal back to the eating again. I have several here right now. Thank you, Gary. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks. Um, I know this is, uh, this is a tough one. And again, I, I feel terrible for people going through this. You know, I try to put myself back in the place of a new keeper and they have this animal and they're, you know, they're sincerely doing everything they can and they're not necessarily doing anything wrong. And this animal's not eating for them. Um, they just got it. And the person they bought it from said it's been eating like a champ and, uh, yet they can't even get it to strike. It just tucks its head. And uh, we've all been there. We all know that I've sold many animals that were eating very well for me that they weren't eating for their new owners. And so the word I would describe to get, well, it all comes down to technique, as we all know. Uh, it sounds, you know, we were always accused as chondro keepers and breeders of being pompous, right? And we throwing the word technique around, it doesn't help us. But the reality is it just comes down to technique. And it's something, it's like driving a five-speed, right? I always say I can, I can explain to you all day how to drive a five-speed and how to re- slowly release the clutch until you feel it grab and then give it a little gas. But uh, unless you're in front of me or unless you're actually doing it, it just takes time, it takes patience, and it takes uh, practice. Um, but the number one word I think I would use is uh, aggressive. You've got to be aggressive, even feeding a, you know, a 15-gram little neonate. You've got you to tease the hell out of it. You've got to poke and prod it, and you've got to get it to strike. Uh, every time I'm reading comments and somebody's saying, I can't get it to, uh, my baby to feed, and people always write, well, you should try braining the rodent. You should try, you know, braining <laughs> the pinky. And it's like, oh, my God, I feel like we're talking about tricolor kings back in 1986, you know. Um, so, anyway, I, I think that's the best way is if you're listening and you're not, your animal's having a tough time, you've got to be more aggressive with it. These animals, as delicate as they are as far as their physical appearance, um, they can take some aggressive teasing and poking and potting, prodding with a, a pair of uh, hemostats and don't be shy don't be afraid you're not going to break the animal get it striking and until you get it striking that animal's not going to eat it's that simple is anybody that, here in, in addition oh sorry uh, go go ahead. yeah i was going to say has anybody gonna... ever brained a pinky before <laughs> i wouldn't even know how to do it. i've never tried that thing. oh yeah <laughs> yep i've done has. it many a right. times with uh yeah, when I was working with uh, liasis and yeah, uh, those type of antaricias, I would, uh, I would try it, and I, I don't think I had that much success with it. 
you know, I'm not saying, by the way, it can't be effective. I'm just saying it's absolutely not necessary with chondros. I'm just trying to save everybody some aggravation right. of having to do that. Yep. You know, you don't have to dip a lizard, a pinky in a in lizard's guts. You just don't have to do that. You know, so um, anyway, that's just my two cents on that. Yeah, and one of the things I was going to add earlier was just that, you know, the most important thing is to make sure you let it settle in. Uh, don't freak out, you know, if it doesn't eat for you the first time or two. Um, yep. There yep. are some animals that, you know, you can take out of the shipping box and set them up, and, I mean, they'll eat the very first night. Um, but there are also some that, uh, you know, take a little time to get settled in and, and I know how it is, man. You got one chondro, and all you want to do is just like, you know, it's all you can do to not put your hands on it. Uh, yeah. Especially when you first get it. And unfortunately, nowadays, a lot of these animals are coming just because they're, you know, it's an expensive snake to to, to begin with. And now there's uh, Petco's got them for, you know, 250 bucks. And I'm not not sure if that's a good thing or a bad thing for the hobby. Uh, certainly it's not good for the uh, individual animals, but um, I don't know if uh, having having them more readily available like that is at least exposing people to them that maybe had, had never never seen them before or, uh, you know, just maybe didn't know what a chondro was. Um, but, a, you know, Coming from a, a pet store like that, you can just expect that you're going to have issues, and that's one of the things that people email me or you know send me a PM on Facebook and ask questions about you know what kind of device, and they send me a picture of it, and they've got it you know they've got the full Petco set up with their thermometers and heat lights, and um, obviously a wild caught animal, and um, yeah. You know, it's bioactive, bioactive setup. With it, it just looks beautiful. Sure, yeah, and I mean, not not <laughs> that there's anything wrong with that. I mean, uh, obviously that's a, that's a cool thing if you know what you're doing. But um, I I almost hate telling those people, man. You know, you're 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 fighting an uphill battle already. Uh, odds are not in the, in that snake's favor that it's going to survive especially with you being inexperienced and really not knowing what you're doing. Um, I'd be curious to know what percentage of those animals uh, make it and how long they last. I got to think it's pretty low though. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess I'll just paraphrase your response. Marshall is basically get the right chondro from the right person and your feeding problems are going to, diminish immensely. <laughs> oh, that's the first step. Yeah, that's the, that's the first step in, in solving any of these, or not any, but a lot of these problems that we're going to talk about. Um, okay. Now, I don't I don't have any experience dealing with, uh, in all the years that I've been doing it, I've never owned a wild-caught animal. I don't have, uh, so I'm not, I'm the worst person to be talking to about it. There's a lot of people out there who have, you know, kind of specialized in that and it's, you know, the same thing with yeah. emeralds. They can get wild caught emeralds, and they just know what to do, well, how to treat them, what what you know, what wormers to give them, what. Uh, uh, and that's just, I have absolutely zero experience with that, so I don't know. 
I don't know kind of what to tell people sometimes other than, you know, point them in the right direction. Like you were saying earlier, hey, call, talk to this guy. He, he's got a lot more uh, knowledge than I do as far as uh, getting a wild-caught animal established. Or, um, so. I, I always give all those people Gary's contact info, <laughs> address, <laughs> cell phone. <laughs> sure, no, no problem. Bill, this is what you're retiring to, so good luck with all that. I hope you have fun. Yeah. <laughs> you're going to go back to work as a doctor real quick. <laughs> if I had to deal with introducing brand new people to imported chondros, then yes, I would. Yeah, yeah. The secret weapon for, for, for getting... Uh, assuming um, assuming that, you know, all your conditions are right and, and husbandry's on, you know, husbandry's on point and, and all that kind of stuff, uh, that for me the secret weapon for stubborn feeders has always been chick scent. Um, that, I, to the point to where when I'm trying to feed babies for the first time, I don't even try without it anymore. Um, you know, I used to, I used to feel like, some people would uh, look down upon that, like uh, a baby is not as, uh, I don't know if valuable is the right word, but, you know, it's almost like a, a negative if you got the baby, if you had to use chick scent to start your babies. Uh, you, want, you, know, the, the, you want the babies that are going to eat without chick scent. And mm. at some point, I just said, you know what, that's, that's great and all that may be true, but I'm using chick scent anyway 100% of the time just because it's so much easier um, I found that using it, I probably get a 75 to 80% uh, success rate on the first try, and um, the rest seem to uh, come around maybe after a few tries. But it's a uh, well, it's definitely a, a, a nice weapon to have in your in your well, Marshall, I'll, I'll, in your, I'll let the other guys uh, interject. I, I agree with you 100%. I do the exact same thing. Every single one gets chicked down. But back to Gary's point, that's because you say 80%, but that's because you are very skilled at peas feeding a fresh hatchling uh, green tree. I can, I, I can guarantee you I could chick down a, a pink and put it into somebody's hands that did not have that experience, and you could – Douse it and chick down. They're still not going to get a beat. That's right. Yeah, technique is very important. Gary, what do you think, helps. buddy? Oh no, I'm I'm listening intently. I agree with you a thousand percent. I, I that's the first word that comes to mind when people talk about getting chondros to feed. It's always technique. Um, I think we should just differentiate though between, you know, what to do when you get a chondro from somebody that's an established baby that's not feeding for you yes. after it just, you know, transmitted to your home, then we right. go with that's all technique. But yet when we're talking about chick scenting, and Marshall mentioned, yeah, absolutely, uh, as far as the first-time feeders, yeah, chick scent. I mean, my, I don't know yeah. what you guys do, but my first thing is I always offer uh, live pinkies, and then the second thing I do is I wash the pinky and then chick scent the hell out of it. That's my second plan of attack, and my third plan of attack, I've tried, I just go back and forth to those two things with freshly hatched babies, and finally, after a few times, if they're not eating on their own, I'll just go ahead and force feed an entire pinky, a tiny pinky, and I just force feed a couple times, and man, they just kickstart from there, so, um, but yeah, to, to go back to what you asked me, Bill, the technique with whether you're chick scenting, not chick scenting, 
established conjure that wasn't feeding, that was feeding now, not feeding for you. Yeah, I mean, the number one thing is technique. So, and how, and how do we yeah. teach that, right? That's always a challenge. Right, right. Buddy, you have anything to, to yeah, add? Yeah, I'll, I'll jump in here with a couple of things. Um, so I always, you know, it never fails. Uh, you know, you, you send out a baby, it's, it's rocking and rolling, and then someone gets back to you and says, hey, you know, this is, you know, it's not working, it's not eating. Um, and so I, I tried, you know, and I tried to do this before I send the snake, but I try to figure out, like, what exactly is the environment. And I've, I have found that a lot of people um, that are having, you know, difficulty getting that animal feed for the first time, uh, at least a, a common theme has been that when they go to feed the animal and they either have the animal maybe in a standalone tub or they've got in a rack system, they take that entire tub out of the rack to try to feed the snake. And what I've kind of picked up on with experience with chondros is I get a better feeding response. Um, so if I, I slide out that tub and there's a chondro right at the front of the tub, I pull that tub all the way out and I turn it around and I put that tub back into the rack so that the babies with the snake um, the, is covered by part of the rack. So there's a, essentially a top on the back on the top of the snake. Um, and I feel they are more apt to eat and they are, feel more secure with that coverage uh, over the top of their head. So that's the first thing I try to figure out is, like, how exactly are you feeding this animal? And if they're doing that, 80% of those folks, they, if they correct that one thing, they offer food in a manner where they're not coming down directly on top of a snake. If they're offering food, you know, at the level of the snake or or from below the snake, that that issue can be taken care of. And the other thing Gary and Marshall kind of hit on, too, as well, is, is technique. Um, I've seen people post videos of, you know, they're they're going to feed their chondro and the snake doesn't eat. And I can look at that video and I can see that snake wants to eat, but the person's technique just isn't there yet. And it's really just a matter of, like uh, Gary mentioned, just being aggressive, you know, do some research, just some good vi uh, feeding videos by some of them, by the late Rico. Um, Kim Burge has a pretty good feeding video on her website. Uh, it just shows you how to be aggressive. I think I have one on my YouTube channel, maybe. Um, and so look at those and see how these people are engaging these animals and causing them to, you know, strike at the at the food items. I think people kind of um, give up a little too quickly with these animals initially, and then it sets them up for failure. I do believe there's a conditioning part of the feeding response to these animals. Um, and so once you start deconditioning them to not eat every time you open a tub and offer food, I think you're setting yourself up uh, for further failure. So those are my my two things that I try to coach people on and try to put them in the right direction so they're successful with an animal that's maybe not initially feeding for them when, when it arrives. Yeah, I think that's a good point, buddy. So essentially, don't try to, if it doesn't eat, don't try to feed it an hour later or the next day or a day after that, you know, don't, don't pound it, deconditioning it, you know, to not eat. You know, let it settle in three, four days before you try again. Right. Yep. Yeah, yeah and Makes only only keeping the tub slightly open. That's 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 
pretty important too. I've never really heard anybody say that, but I, I mean, I, I do it. Um, but yeah, I, I think that's that's really important. And so, uh, I also one other thing I want to mention I forgot to mention is also I've seen people standalone tubs. And so they have a standalone tub, and they've got the animal in a tub that has a clear top. And um, and I'm, I'm talking based. I'm going to use my experience based on my animals. And so you know, I try to you know talk to the owner and say, you know, maybe put a piece of newspaper on top of that cage or that tub, um, some type of paper, so that the so the animal doesn't feel as exposed from above. And and normally that corrects any sense of insecurity that the animal may have that's preventing it from, from accepting a meal. Um, just some workarounds that I've, I've had, some experiences I've had with people using standalone clear tubs yeah. with clear lids on them. That, that's, a, that's an excellent point. And, Buddy, I'll just add to that because I've had the exact same experience. And even if you just – I'm not a big fan of putting fake foliage into my cages or my racks, but if you have a standalone tub – Putting a little, you know, just uh, hot gluing, just a little bit of foliage in there on the top of the tub and on the sides, I think gives that animal in a freestanding tub a lot of security. Yep. Agreed. So we've talked about stubborn feeders. Um, the next topic we're going to talk about is my snake is eating, but it has went to the bathroom um, and a few feedings. Um, Marshall, you want to start us off with, with how you handle animals that maybe aren't going to the bathroom regularly? Sure. Uh, I think mo getting them moving is really important. Um Certainly misting them will help sometimes, uh, even though, um, you know, I guess there's been a lot of, not controversy, but just kind of back and forth about whether or not misting is good or bad or whether it's required or, or, or not. I think we lost you a little bit there, Marshall. Yeah, we're having some drop dropping in the feed tonight. Gary, hey, are you are you there? Can you guys hear me? I'm going yeah, in and out go a little ahead. bit. I, I Sorry, you guys. I yeah. dropped out there. Second, second. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah. We hear you, Marshall. Okay. So, um, yeah, in addition to, to getting them moving uh, to, to, to misting, you can try soaking, uh, soaking them in just shallow room temperature. You know, I usually just put a tub, um, you know, put about a quarter of an inch or half inch of water in the bottom of it, just depending on what size the animal is. You definitely don't want to do it too deep. Uh, definitely no, no deeper than it. You don't want it to go over the snake's back. Um, and a lot of times that'll help. And I, I think that really just kind of you put them in that tub and they start moving around. I think that's really what does it more so than the water. But um, and then uh, I've I've read a lot of stuff and seen a lot of stuff on Facebook with the rain chamber uh, lately. And 
I know a lot of people are, uh, or a few people have tried that and had some, uh, had some success with it. And, um, which, you know, makes sense. It's, it's the, the water is getting them moving around and you got a big, big space for them to kind of, kind of move. And, um, I don't know about, about you guys, but a lot of times it's, um, no matter how big of a cage you give a snake, sometimes they just, there's just some that don't move. Uh, they don't you see them. They're in the same spot every night. They, they'll, uh, they'll come down and, you know, maybe, maybe do the, uh, S curve and hang their heads down to hunt. Um, but as far as like really moving around and crawling around the cage, they just, they just don't do it. Hey, Marshall, when you soak an animal, whether, you know, it's for constipation or stuck shed or just to hydrate them, how long will you typically soak an animal? I mean, if it's like for a bad stuck shed or, or if it's for a soak, usually not that long. I mean, if they're, if, if, if I feel like they're constipated, usually Mm -hmm. if that's going to happen, it'll happen in my experience overnight. So, uh, you know, maybe say, say 12 hours, uh, something like that. But I mean, really if they're, if they're in room, room temperature water, uh, like for a bad shed or something, I've left them for, for days soaking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Fine. See, that's that's what I was uh, I was getting at. I've heard people throw out there, oh, soak them for a couple of hours. Well, to me, if you're talking about it, you know, in, in, at least in a chondro, a significant soaking period is is overnight. Sure, you know? I agree. With yeah, you do, Gary. Thousand percent. Yeah, nothing happens with chondros in a few hours. It typically always requ- usually <laughs> typically requires overnight. And uh, I was just going to add twelve comment on what you guys are talking about as far as uh, whether it's a dry shed or a constipated animal. I, I had, um, you know, we all have our issues. We all had our problems in the past with these animals. We were always trying to figure them out. And I'll tell you, one of the worst prolapses, unfortunately, by a large female I had was I. I had soaked her, uh, trying to get her to defecate, and when she defecated in the water, just because it lubed everything up so easily. Look, I don't know if that was the reason or not, but the reality is she had a bad prolapse in the water. Um, mm-hmm. Was that a one-time, one-off thing? Yeah, it was, but it put the fear of God in me, and since that time, I no longer soak animals to get them to defecate. Um, mm-hmm. so that's what we're talking about earlier, right? We could talk to 10 different guys who've been doing this for a long time with different results, so... Yeah, I think it's very effective. It works, you know, for most people, so go ahead and keep doing it. What I do now is I'll just take an animal, any chondro, put it in like a 16-quart tub, and I just saturate a piece of paper towel on the bottom of it. It's, um, you know, I, I tip the tub to remove any excess water, but it's it, it's saturated, the paper towel on the bottom. I just close the lid. I throw that animal right in an incubator just to keep the you know, a constant temperature, and I'll put that in overnight, and always, I, uh, whether it's a dry shed or it needs to uh, defecate, I, I always get the same result. So, yeah, I love the whole soaking in water. Uh, it, it's great, but like I said, I had that one experience with it a few years back, and since that time, I just don't soak animals anymore. So so you, you bring up a very good point about, um, you know, all right, let's say you are going to soak an animal or you're going to put it in with a damp paper towel. You put the, you put the um, tub in the incubator to keep it at whatever your 77, 87, 80 degrees. Yeah. As opposed to just, yeah, I think it's a good point because, you know, you don't want the animal depending what your ambient temperatures are to, you know, get down that water temperature is going to get 70 degrees or, you know, whatever uh, overnight. Yeah. If it's a, yeah, if it's a smaller animal in a rack already, then there's you know, hey, there's no problem. Yeah. Just making a few modifications to its existing, where it, where you know, it's it's uh, where it 
constant, lives all the time. However, with a larger animal, I'm taking them out of 30, you know, 24-inch cubes or 36-inch enclosures and then taking them and putting them in the box just because um, I just don't always get that same result by just soaking down a cage, especially if there's a dry shed already, you know. But prior to an animal shedding, it's no problem. Yeah, if I catch an animal going into a shed and I spray an enclosure, that will take care of the matter instantly. But this time of the year when the heat is kicking on, um, and if I get a dry shed on an animal, I, I typically don't have much luck by uh, just, you know, spraying down the enclosure uh, over a next day, hoping it's going to shed on its own. To, you know, unfortunately, sometimes they're pretty dry, and it, it takes the whole moving to an incubator. So, yeah, sure. Yeah, especially this time of year, once they're once they've got a bad shed, I, yeah. spraying the enclosure is not really going to do very much. Yeah, yeah. Gary carries right about that. You have to. You got to take uh, take the next step for sure. Yeah, I don't want. Uh, I, I want to hear Buddy's um, also kind of his soaking routine, whether he does and he doesn't. But but before he gets into that, I do have a very important question uh, from a listener. He didn't want to call in, um, but he did message me, and this the question is for Gary. Uh, Jason Stevens wants to know what you're wearing, and if any of it's made of leather. <laughs> He knows exactly what I'm wearing, and he knows it's Sunday night, and I always wear leather on Sunday night. Okay. That's kind of what I I want to say, since you mentioned Jason, if he is listening, I always give Jason full credit. You know, I've had a lot of people help me with a lot of uh, issues over the years with animals, Marshall being one of them, but uh, I attribute Jason to just help me make modifications onto my – he and I use the same exact incubator, and he helped me make some modifications on that probably a good, I don't know, eight years ago, and it really made such a huge difference with hatching eggs. So, um, you know, I always give him credit for that. You still see Jason fighting the hard fight about um, trying to answer people's questions on Facebook, you know, trying to fight that battle that we say it's not worth fighting anymore. Um, But you still see Jason throw some posts out there. I think we're all just getting older and more crotchety. That's what's happening with all of us. We just have no patience oh, anymore. Hundred percent. Yeah. That's what's happening with yeah. me, at least. Yeah. <laughs> well, all right, buddy. Buddy, I want to hear your thoughts um, on soaking. I, I I know your thoughts a little bit, but because you've you've mentioned yeah, me sure. on. But go ahead. So I um so if I've got to think this hasn't went to the bathroom in a while, I my trick is I take the perch out of the cage or the perches out of the cage. And um, I go down there right before the lights go off, and I take the animal and take them off the perch and take the perches off. And, um, you know, normally I come down the next day and, you know, they've went to the bathroom. They've been out. I've made them crawl around, um, and they've had some activity, so they've went to the bathroom. And then, um, you know, for for shedding, for stuck shed, I just do the – uh, you know, put them in a tub or a little, uh, you know, deli cup type container, depending on the age of the animal. Um, and, uh, if my incubator isn't in use, I will use my incubator and I put the animal in there and, you know, let it soak, you know, six hours to overnight type stuff. Um, but I, I normally don't soak an animal if they have one to the bathroom. Another trick that someone else that I'd picked up off the MVF many years ago, and I, I don't know, who to really credit this to, but another trick someone else that I picked up from somebody else is if um, an animal is looking, like I guess we call it a little bit crispy looking, 
to actually to go ahead and take the perch out. Um, for this is for a younger animal, while, if they're in a rack, and um, and most of the times they'll actually perch on the lip of the water bowl. So they'll sit on the edge of the water bowl and you know kind of rehydrate themselves naturally without me having to put water in there and 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 let them soak in a a tub. So just another trick that I'll use. Um, you know that that's pretty much how I, I I handle those situations. One thing that that I feel like is important to say about stuck sheds is that really, even if it's in the winter time, summertime, they're, they're it, I found they're they're fairly preventable um, if you're in tune to what's going on. You know, you got to see when the animal's going into shed, when they're going opaque, and you got to. I'm not a big mister. You know, I, I'll I'll miss the. Uh, I don't even really mist anymore. I'll either just dump the water bowl in the bottom of the cage or I've got a you know water hose hooked up in my room and I'll just go and saturate the bottom of the cage. I don't ever spray the animals directly, but uh, the minute that I see them going in shed, um, I'll go and just uh, get the hose and s- spray the bottom of the cage so where the newspaper just stays saturated until they shed. And, um, uh, you know, there's once you get your caging worked out and you get the proper amount of ventilation and um, keeping the substrate damp or wet during a shed should, you know, prevent the need for me to ever have to, to, to deal with a stuck shed. Obviously things happen, you know, people miss them, you get, you get busy and uh, you don't, you know, maybe you, 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 you go a day and you don't check things as thoroughly as you should have or whatever. And you know, it's, it's easy, you know, it can be easy to miss, but if you're really tuned in to, uh, to what's going on, um, a stuck shed is something that's very easy to prevent from happening. Yep, I agree. Um, and I think it takes some experience to kind of see, um, you know, I remember for me when I, when I was first, my first couple of clutches of chondros um, that were all yellow neonates, that I had a problem sometimes telling that like a yellow neonate was in a shed just because it was so subtle and I wasn't, you know, so I didn't boost the ambient humidity any and, you know, it wind up with, you know, a partial shed or a stuck shed. When you guys do a, uh, when you guys have an animal that may have a stuck shed, do you guys ever, um, do you just let them handle it on their own in the tub or the container or will you actually take them out and handle them and let them kind of help peel the, the shed off? manually peel the shed off of the of a chondro. You mean with a baby buddy or with a larger animal? Yeah, I got yeah, I would yeah, I know I, I don't do it with a baby, but if uh, like a larger animal, maybe like had a yearling or an or an adult. Uh, I personally just put them in the sixteen core tub with a wet paper towel, throw them in the incubator and come back in the morning and typically it comes off in one piece. I don't usually assist okay. unless Yeah. Okay. I will if it if it if it, if they go uh you know uh, two or three days in the in the water um in in a soak after two or three days if they don't uh if they don't get it off for whatever reason I'll 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 help them out um but usually like Gary said it's usually not necessary unless it's really really bad um you know if you get some of these I see some people that have uh rescues or, or whatever, you know, and they've got, they've got multiple stuck sheds. That's a whole nother, that's a whole nother, uh, game. The longer that it stays on, it seems like the, the harder it is to, to get it off. But even if you have one that, 
uh, stuck shed and you notice it like, you know, maybe the day, the, the morning of, you notice that, that they just shed their head and the rest of it's, you know, still on them. Um, usually it's so, you know, 90% of the time is, is all it takes to, to fix that. But it seem, does seem like the longer that they have the stuck shed, the harder it becomes to get it off. Yep. Agreed. It kind of gets baked on. Yep. So, Bill, we were talking about, uh, my question was, if you have an animal that um, has a, a shedding issue and you do you soak them and try to manually assist them or do you just let it come off naturally? Yeah, I was hearing um, you guys talk, and, and I usually do not try to get it to come off manually. I will soak them um, a couple of times, and if it's just one bad shed, I'll then kind of, I mean, I'll just let them go. I'll let them have a bad shed until they go into their next shed cycle. And then when they do, I make sure I'm pretty diligent about you know, increasing that humidity in that in that tub or that cage for that shed cycle. And then when they have that second cycle, then it's it resolves itself. Gotcha. Okay. So the next topic we'll talk. Does anyone else have anything to, to contribute to the last topic, or do you want to move on to the next one? I think I'm ready. Yeah, okay. Yeah, okay, good. So the next topic is going to be prolapses, and um, I'm kind of going to knock on some wood here. And I'm going to listen to you guys talk about this because in my condo experience, I've had one prolapse. Um, wow. So, and hopefully uh, hopefully, I'm not setting myself up for 15 prolapses tomorrow when I go down to check out the snakes. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> but, I, can't you, uh, I can't believe you said that out loud, buddy. I know, Gary, and you let me do it, too. Um, I'm sorry. I but so, but I, I wanted to say I, that... The, like we talked about, make sure the person who you're seeking your information from um, has some experience with the topic. So that's why I felt it was appropriate for you. the three of you maybe have, may have more experience, I'm, I'm assuming, but I can't say for certain. Um, so I'll let you guys maybe discuss how you manage those animals. I'll tell you how I manage my animal. I saw, and of course, it was a gravid female, and she was about a week out from laying. So, of course, I freaked out. Uh, called my vet, packed up the snake, took the snake to the vet, um, and the vet looked at it and said, I can't believe you brought this minor prolapse in for me to handle. You definitely could have done this yourself. Um, They pushed it back in with her pinky, put a piece of Coban tape on it, and sent me back, and she said, take it off in a day, and she should be fine. So that's how I handled the prolapse. Yes, she was. Yes, she did. No problems. Um, I could jump in if you guys want. Um, I was going to say, Gary, you probably, Gary's probably dealt with more prolapse than all of us put together. Well, thank you, Bill. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> and I met in your condo collection. Well, I, um, oh, okay. I thought you meant me personally, because either way you would be accurate. Um, you know, honestly, truth be told, is I've been really fortunate. I have not had that many prolapses. It's just that, you know, it is, Bill, I share all my information, unlike a lot of other keepers. I don't, you know, I, I uh, put it all well, out there. I, 
I, I said that only jokingly, and because you have probably brought in more farm-bred, quote-unquote, animals well, than the rest of us put together. Well, prolapsing does not discriminate, okay, Mr. Stegall. Um, no, so here's the good news about prolapsing with the chondral collection. You know, years ago it was a death sentence if you had a prolapse. Uh, a lot of people just lost animals. Um, if you have a baby that prolapses, um, well, I, you know, first I'll say this. I could be wrong. I don't know. My experience tells me that um, everything I've seen and read on prolapses and speaking with people, I think it really boils down to dehydration in most cases. I'm not saying every case. I think dehydration plays a large part of it. Um, you know, and the reality is a baby prolapsing is very different than a, you know, an older animal prolapsing. Typically with a baby, if it happens, again, I go back to my damp paper towel on the bottom of, the, of its enclosure. I remove all the perches, so it has to be crawling on the wet bottom. It's you know, it's not in water. It's on a damp paper towel. And I simply take some regular sugar, you know, from a regular sugar packet, and I, I coat the prolapse. And I will tell you, 75% of the time it goes back in on its own, I mean, quickly, within a couple hours. Um, if it doesn't go back quickly, you can usually just take a Q-tip, reinsert the prolapse, put a little piece of tape on it for a couple of days, and you're as good as good to go. And then I would say moving forward, that animal, just use common sense. You may not feed it as regularly for the next few feedings. Uh, I would skip a couple of weeks. I would uh, feed it smaller meals until you felt that um, you were past the danger point, hopefully. And, and trust me, I've had babies prolapse and never prolapse again. Um, and now we go to larger animals, it's, it's really that same routine. I'll cover the prolapse with, uh, again, I remove the animal from the enclosure. There's no perch. I put it in a 16-quart enclosure with damp paper towel on the bottom. I cover it with regular sugar. Um, if that is not effective on an adult, if I can't, uh, yeah, I think most people, the biggest problem is it's not that you're not able to reinsert the prolapse on your own. It's just that a lot of people don't have help in their snake room with them to, you know, and that's why we're sometimes have to yeah. go with that for that just because you need an extra set of hands. And it's not something yeah, it's, you could say, hey, exactly. I'll go next week. I'll go, you know, you can't yeah, say I'll go yeah. next week. It's, it's, uh, you got to go right, quickly. Right. It, um, yeah, yeah, it's a two-person job, really, it is. Absolutely. And I'll tell you, I'm really fortunate. I have a vet who I work with. He's great. And if I have an animal like that that um, will prolapse, I'll have him throw a couple sutures in the prolapse. Uh, I'll leave it like that for four or five days and then uh, remove it. And, again, just use common sense. Don't feed that animal. I would, I would skip that animal for a week or two. Um, and then I would just feed it smaller meals. But, I mean, if I'm being realistic in all these years of keeping chondros, I've probably had maybe six to eight prolapses. And of those six to eight, I will tell you, probably 75% of them were neonates. So um, I've been pretty fortunate. Mm. Marshall, what about you, buddy? Yeah, I, I would agree with that, uh, especially with, with babies. Um, you know, it, it's something that's bound to happen. In my experience, I think there's there's probably a once a baby prolapses one time. Um, I, I, unfortunately, I've seen probably a fifty. You know, they've got a fifty-fifty shot whether they're gonna whether they're gonna pull through and make it or not. A lot of them will will, will pull through for you know several months or maybe even a year, but um, it always seems to to want to come back. Uh, but as far as dealing with them. Very similar to what Gary said. Uh, it's something that I've tried here. I actually just had uh, a, a neonate prolapse um, a couple of weeks ago, and 
one of the things that I've always done, like 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 Gary was saying, is put them put them on a wet paper towel and uh, do do the sugar trick. And uh, most of the time, you don't have to touch them; it'll go in on on, on their own. One thing I, I did want to mention though is that when you're using sugar, a lot of times, especially if it's a really small baby, you want to be uh, cognizant of um, the sugar, you know, because it kind of gets all over them. And the sugar will, I've actually had it, you know, I don't know if it's really doing this or if it just makes it, it certainly makes it seem like it's, you know, it's, it's dehydrating the animal. So, uh, the skin will get real dry and wrinkly. And, um, so you don't want to leave them kind of soaking in sugar for, for an extended period of time. Um, just cause just like it, you know, you're trying to dry that, tr- trying to, pull the water out of that tissue is what the sugar is doing. And if the snake is really small, you can end up doing that to the whole, to the whole snake. Um, well, at least that's what it, you know, what it, what it seems like, but, uh, using a probe to gently insert it if it hasn't gone in. Um, and one thing I tried with this, with this, uh, uh recent prolapse is, um, you know, I guess the, uh, the the logic behind putting them um, putting them on a wet paper towel is to keep the prolapse from drying out, but that's also uh, counter to trying to suck the water out of it, um, so that it'll it'll you know the swelling will reduce and it'll go back in. So this time uh, on this latest one, uh, I just put it on a dry paper towel and stuck it back in the tub. Took the perch out. Uh, stuck it on a dry paper towel, didn't do sugar, didn't do anything, and uh, it actually went back in. So, you know, time will tell if that is a long-term, you know, if it's successful long-term, but uh, uh, it's it's been working for, you know, a couple weeks now. Um, and that's kind of one of the things I was saying earlier is that, uh, you know, this is probably the – I don't know. I'm just going to take a guess and say it's the 20th baby prolapse I've ever dealt with. But, um, you know, uh, not scared to uh, try something try something different. Uh, they've got a, like I was saying, they've got a 50-50 shot of making it, and I know what the result's going to be if I do X, so why not try? It's not going to hurt to try, you know, try something different and in this case that's something that i had never done before and like i said so far it uh it seems to have worked but um something else too is you'll a lot of times you're like me you'll come in the middle of the night check them if you catch them while they're defecating sometimes they'll prolapse and then it it goes back in but without you having to do anything you know it's only out for a short period of time and there's been multiple times where i've come in in the middle of the night and checked on things and pulled the tub open and it's like, oh shit, you know, another, another prolapse and um, I'll just deal with this tomorrow, close the tub and then come back the next morning and check on them and they're fine. Um, mm. So, Interesting. Interesting. You know, um, I have hatched a fraction of the number of babies that, that you three guys have. I, I've never had a, a baby prolapse but one thing that I do differently that I don't think any of you guys do is I establish my hatchlings on a pure water substrate. So in other words, there's just a perch in the hatchling tub and what I describe as a 
film or a sliver of water on the bottom of the tub, and that's it. That's their water source, and that's their substrate. And um, I do that because it obviously increases the humidity, and any time they get off that perch, they're exposed to a water source. And um, I've had good results with that. I do that until I get a few meals in them, and then I'll go to standard uh, paper towel and small water dish. Um, but I've never lost a Neo to uh, to drowning um, because I don't put enough water in the bottom that they, they could drown. Um, and I've never had prolapse, and it, it helps with what Buddy said. Sometimes with yellow babies, you don't know when they're in shed, and so I haven't had any shed issues or prolapse issues in, in, in very young babies that I'm establishing. What do you guys think? Yeah, that's, yeah no, I, I like that, Bill. I um the thing I will do is my baby's in a rack every morning just because I am so fear of prolapsing, and I uh, I always think it comes down to dehydration. I actually will – I know Marshall says he doesn't like to do it. I'll actually mist my babies, just not the whole enclosure, just the animal itself, like two or three quick – I mean, little drops. So they have droplets in their coils so they could drink just for the first few weeks just with the babies. I always um, – you know, I'll always spray them. But I just wanted to get your thoughts. The three of you, what do you guys um, – do you think – um, that dehydration plays a part in prolapsing, or do you think it more has to do with meal size, or what are your thoughts? I think it definitely does, and, and something else I've noticed, too, is that mine seem to prolapse um, when I don't, this is, count, you know, again, it's counterintuitive, but it seems like if I feed them more sporadically, mm-hmm. the chance of a prolapse is higher than keeping them well, keeping their system kind of primed, if that makes any well, sense. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. You know, I've I've found that uh, if I'll go two or three weeks, like a lot of times, you know, if we're gonna, if I know I'm gonna be out of town or going on vacation or whatever, I'll stop feeding everything for a couple weeks before I leave, just to let everything clean out, so that I'm not having to, you know, deal with a mess when I get home. But, um, uh. A lot of times I've found that it's during that period where I haven't been feeding them every five days or seven days or, or whatever, and I've gone on two or three weeks, I'll have like two of them prolapse. Um, so that's just something that uh, I remember so talking with. Uh, yeah, maybe they just shut down a little bit. Their their GI tract shuts down. You know, I, I don't know. I don't. I don't have a uh, uh, you know medical or. or uh, Theory. Anatomical reason, you know, yeah, reason for for why it could happen. It's just something that I've noticed because, uh, you know, you do. Um, a lot of people are scared to feed babies uh, because they don't want them to prolapse, and um, it seems like small, frequent meals, uh, or not necessarily even small, but frequent meals. Um, I say frequent, like definitely no more than every, you know, five five to seven days, but. Uh, Letting them go for two to you know two weeks in between or three weeks in between meals is is not uh, not a great idea um, be, because of that. I don't do it anymore. I used to. I used to try to grow things up really slow, and felt that was kind of the best strategy to take is uh, you know feeding them every feeding babies every every two weeks or even three weeks. But um, since I've since I've been more diligent about trying to get them. Every five to seven days, I feel like uh, the prolapses have kind of dropped off. Still get them, but not as many. That's interesting. There was a uh, person 
on one of the Facebook forums. His name's Paul Holt. I know him because uh, the animal that this happened to is the animal that I produced, and he had purchased this from me. But it was a male. It's a male animal, and it had just um, it went through a fast and a return to feeding. And I think the first feeding after the fast, the animal prolapsed. Um, that's kind of interesting. You mentioned that, Marshall, that uh, when you spread the meal frequency out, that you've seen uh, higher currents of prolapse. So I wonder, you know, if there is a correlation there between, you know, frequency of the meals and timing of the meals, and maybe if, you know, I think one of the things Paul had talked about, too, was that maybe they lose some of the fauna uh, because they're just not digesting anything. And so uh, they're not maybe able to digest the animal completely or 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 it just causes a problem because they've been on fasting for a while. So, you know, which makes me think, well, gosh, maybe as a as a prudent keeper, maybe if you have an animal on a fast, maybe when they do go back on feed, you wouldn't offer the regularly sized meal that you would normally offer. Maybe you go something a little bit smaller um, so it's not as taxing on their system the first, the, the first thing you put into their gut. So... You know the one yeah, thing that we yeah, haven't I, talked. Uh, sorry, yeah, Marshall. The sorry. one thing that we haven't talked about is is you know we've talked about feeding frequency, but again, hydrating that that food item. You know how important that is. Um, you know to help with that digestion, especially if an animal that it, you know like you guys are talking about has not been has not been fed in quite some time. I, I really think hydrating the food source is is, is invaluable. Could very yeah, well I've be. never really done that, other than other than uh, you know a, a, any frozen thawed rodent. I don't I don't uh, like when I'm when I'm feeding ball pythons. I'll I'll try to you know I'll keep a, a, a you know some mouse towels in my room when I pull them out of the pull them out of the, the you know the hot water. Um, I'll kind of try to dry them off just because uh, I don't want the substrate sticking to them when I feed them. But uh, sure. with chondros, I use newspaper, and um, so I just pull them right out of the, you know, right out of whatever whatever tub I use to to thaw them out and just feed them wet. Uh, so they do yeah, have yeah. some, hand, you know, some water that's just stuck to their hair, and what, I've never gone as far sure. as like injecting them with with water or anything like that. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. That's what I meant by by hydrating the 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 mouse or rat or whatever by just soaking it before you, you know, just don't yeah. offer it dry. I've never done that. I mean, it, it seems like it could only be beneficial. But when you when it's wet, though, how wet is it? Is it just you towel dry it? You said a little bit, so it's damp, or is it actually dripping wet? My, no, mine's dripping wet when I offer it. Wow, yeah, okay. mine, mine too. Yeah. Wow. Same with me. Yeah, I've never done that. Wow. That's amazing. Well, there you go. I've never done that before. Well, it doesn't sound like you're having a significant prolapse or shedding issue yeah. in your collection. So, yeah. you know, do what works for you. Gary, what are your thoughts on prolapses? Do you think it's purely hydration, or do you think there could be other factors that could uh, I, I, put an animal at risk? I, I, yeah, I think, man, I I just really always go to dehydration. But I think especially with babies, I think dehydration plays a big part of it. Um, you know, in the wild, they'd be eating uh, lizards, right, and frogs in the wild, and we're giving them these pinkies, which I'm sure there's a lot of water in them, but at the same time, if you're feeding frozen thought especially, 
Um, I think the water content has to decrease quite a bit after the animal is frozen, and uh, that's why I missed. That's why I missed the babies. I just, uh, like I said, not the enclosure, the baby itself, and I do that. Kind of, it sounds like what Bill does, putting the water on the bottom of the enclosure with babies for the first few weeks after a few meals. I do the same thing with spraying uh, babies, and um, yeah. So I, I think that's. I, I just think it plays a big part in the body. I don't know how much, but that's. Um, I always just try to keep the animals hydrated as best as I can. So. Right. Which is um, tough. I tough would, Yep. Uh, I mean, I agree. I think it, I think it definitely is hydration level. Um, but uh, I went down and visited the, down to the National Zoological Park in D.C. I saw Robin, went down and visited Robin, I guess maybe 10 years ago now. And I will say that they had uh, maybe the animals or maybe yearlings that they had, but they had produced a clutch. They had maybe 10 animals from the clutch that they had produced. A year, a year or so before, and uh, they were in a rack system, just like any, you know, any hobbyist would keep uh, the animals in. And uh, one thing I noticed was that they actually kept uh, their chondros over a water substrate, uh, about a half inch. And then uh, you know, I was talking to Robin about it. She said, when actually when they clean the cages, they also take the chondro over to the the basin that they use. And they actually, when they turn on the water, they 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 run the con they hold the chondro on the perch and they push it back and forth underneath the uh the water spigot and put it back in there that's that's what how they kept their chondros with a water substrate yeah i well, think that was a big marshall you'll probably know a big uh, trooper walsh influence i think trooper had always done that and eugene had always done that and i think people got away from it i think it's really effective i think the only reason people got away from that was because they were afraid that if the animal was to defecate overnight and drink some of the water but i don't know how much credibility they have but i think that would goes back to what the concern was and why i think a lot of people got away from that uh, accurate or not i think that's the reason so yeah but they could just yeah, easily that in their water a whole lot of oh yeah yeah no, i agree you know, no, and, and it's a whole lot of it's a whole lot of no uh, reason to yell at me though. Not looking to get yelled at. <laughs> just, just throwing that out there. Not looking for There's trouble. a whole lot of work in, involved in doing that too. I mean, you know, yeah. if you have a uh, think about having to, you know, like using a using coconut or, or cypress mulch or newspaper. You know, when the animal defecates, you just Either if you're using mulch, you just kind of scoop out where it's dirty, and if you're using newspaper, you pull it out, and you know, just just having to deal with a uh, you know a, a emptying out the you know most cages aren't designed to have a tray or something to 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 be able to keep a, a standing water in the bottom and have it be easily cleanable. So it's kind of a it's kind of a pain in the ass to do that, you know. Marshall, I'm going to send you a video I made that's going to change your mind. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> At least for babies. I'm talking about. I'm talking about before it's had its sec. You know, before it's had its third meal. Oh, Once yeah, it's yeah, eaten yeah. three times. No, yeah, I, I, you know, I, I agree I with that. If it's in a tub. Yeah, I would. Yeah, if it's in a tub, it's it's that's that's a totally different story. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's good stuff, guys. What do we got? What are um, our last one? What? Our eyes, right? Yeah, let's. Yeah, respiratory infections. But I will tell you guys, it looks like we had a caller join us. I'm not sure if they're listening or not. But um, 
possibly maybe they have a question. Should we open the mic and ask them? Yeah. Why not? Okay. All right. No, no, it's my area code. One of my area codes. Let's see who it is. It's Evan. <laughs> Hello? Yeah. Hey, Evan. Okay. All right, we'll continue listening. <laughs> definitely, definitely. Okay. All right. So on to our next topic, respiratory infections. Who would like to take that one on first? Or illness, I should say. I'll, I'll take it on first. You know, that, uh, respiratory infections are something that uh, I, I haven't dealt a ton with them. Um, I, I have. Obviously, if you do it for long enough, you're going to have a few. The very first time it ever happened, um, you know, I saw an animal blowing, blowing uh, bubbles, and literally all I had to do was jack the heat up, and the animal went on to, you know, beat it and lived another five years and had a had a clutch or two. Unfortunately, you know, we all know it doesn't always go that way. Sometimes you have to intervene. Uh, fortunately, I've got a really good vet that uh, is my my not too far away neighbor. Uh, she's uh, what is it? I forget what what the certifying agency is of. AA to the American Association of Zoo, Zoo Vets or something like that. Anyway, she's ACA, accredited. Yeah, ACA, American Zoological Association. Yeah, she's she's certified yeah. in reptiles and amphibians and uh, just extremely knowledgeable. Does does uh, she actually spoke at the uh, the ICAST? ICAST. Uh, yeah, I, I saw her. Well, yeah, she's a, a female, right, Marshall? Yeah, yeah. Her I mean, name is Marie Rush. Yeah, she does. She does uh, the topic she spoke about at this at the uh, ICAST was uh, uh, she does field studies on uh, Corallus. I think I'm saying this right, Grenadensis, which is the Grena. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah Trebo is from Grenada. Um, yeah. Grenada. Right. Gr- yeah, Grenada. So yeah. she goes over there a couple times a year and does, you know, spends a couple months doing field studies. So anyway, she's I'm really lucky to have her, and uh, you know, at this point, um, there's just a couple things that uh, medicine-wise that are kind of the common go-tos. Batrol is one. Um, uh, I've used that with. Uh, Varying degrees of success. You got to be careful with it because it'll really burn. Um, it'll burn the animal. Uh, you see a lot of animals that have uh, batrel scars uh, from, you know, just from from the injection. Um, something that there was a there was a drug that I used a couple of times, and I know that uh, before he died, Rico was using it uh, quite a. Few with you know pretty pretty good success and i think it had just started um just started uh hybrid, being used a hybrid drug it was a hybrid of something yeah i, I, I can't yeah. can't remember what it's called i want to say it's called uh it, it was a, a drug that they used in cattle uh, and i don't even know re- really what they used it, it for uh draxon maybe um i don't know if that rings yeah. a bell with anyone but Drops, um, or something. I think. 
And amicacin is kind of the other go-to that uh, I've used with, you know, with varying degrees of success. Uh, that's another thing that, depending on the severity of it, um, you know, a lot of times animals just aren't going to recover from it. And uh, I'm, I'm wondering, you know, how much of that is, you know, could be due to nidovirus. I know that certainly has played a part in things, at least here in the last couple of years. And, um, but there doesn't seem to be any rhyme or reason, at least in my experience. I've had some that had just a seemingly minor infection, and they just never, you know, never could kick it all the way and ended up ended up dying. And then I've also had, um, you know, I think it was an emerald tree boa, but when you picked it up and held its head down, like literally water drops would fall out of its nose, and that thing would, you know, wheezing and, and um, you know, gurgling, and it, made a hundred percent full recovery. Um, so, you know, it, it doesn't seem to, uh, there's been, I've had varying degrees of success treating it, um, in all different ways, you know, heat, medicine, injections, um, you know, you name it. Uh, but that, that's kind of been my experience with it. Fortunately, I haven't had to deal with it a whole lot in the last couple of years, um, it's probably been, I don't know, three or four years since I've had to, uh, since I've had an animal come down with a respiratory, but, uh, kind of tends to happen when you're stuck. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. I was going to say, can you, uh, usually like identify a cause like, Oh, um, you know, the radiant heat panel went out and I didn't notice it or I dropped temps because I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm breeding or, you know, how often does, you know, does an animal just come down with a respiratory infection and, and nothing has changed with the husband? I would say not, not very often. It's usually due to cycling or, um, you know, some of the other things that you said, cycling, gravid females are notorious for, for, you know, yeah, dying. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, dying, and 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 developing an RI after they have laid a clutch uh, for you know for whatever reason. I guess it's just the strain and just toll it takes on them or whatever. Right. But uh, but yeah, gravid females are um, are are notorious in my experience for for uh, coming down with a respiratory infection. Not something that I see in babies very often. It's only yeah. in adult animals. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't. I don't know, really know why that is. You would think that the babies would be just as susceptible to it as, as the adults, but they just yeah, they don't, they don't, seem, don't seem to be for whatever reason. Gary, what about you, buddy? Well, it's like Marshall doesn't get respiratory infections. Buddy and Bill don't get prolapses. I think I'm the only guy who doesn't know what the hell they're doing over here. I, 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 I don't know why I'm on this call. <laughs> um, we should have got, got Nick Scally on here in your place. Any, I think you should have got insert anybody's name here on this call besides me. Um, listen, I, I think with, with respiratory infections, um, I have a huge respect for, for vets and what they do with animals, and I wish I was smart enough to be a vet. And I have a vet that um, I use on a regular basis. He actually comes to my house, and uh, I've spent substantial financial resources and time with vets with chondros over the years, and it's pretty much always the same result. I mean, you you bring a chondro to a vet with a respiratory infection, and um 
in spite how good the vet is, I think there's less than a 50% chance that animal's going to recover for you. Um, I think the problem mm-hmm. is there's, as Marshall men- mentioned earlier, there's three types of drugs that are going to uh, administer to you. One's going to be amikacin, one's going to be batril, and the other one's going to be fortaz. And if you know anything about these drugs or read the warning labels, I mean, they're just not meant for reptiles. It's that simple. I mean, you know, people with, ca- uh, with carpet pythons or ball pythons, I mean, I think they might have some success with them, but... Um, the reality is that uh, Jason Stevens and I have spoken about this, that these animals just don't respond to these drugs most of the time. Um, amicacin specifically, I mean, it does such damage to these animals' kidneys. It's, you know, it's pretty, it's just read the warning labels on it. And, you know, Batril is meant for dogs and cats. And Fortaz is, um, I mean, from what I understand, it's just a really painful medicine. You keep it, you know, in your refrigerator, you have to inject it at room temperature. I think it's think it's intramuscular and it's just they say it causes a lot of pain to animals too uh, specifically for tabs so uh, any any respiratory infections i've had over the last few years and i've probably had about four of them i can honestly tell you guys that 100 percent of the time i just nebulize the animals without any type of you know people use the f10 which i'm sure could be effective but I literally take my animals uh, that have a, you know, I'm not talking about a severe respiratory infection. I'm seeing a slight clicking. Maybe an animal didn't feed. That's normally an aggressive feeder. I think there could be something going on with the animal. I literally just take it at that moment. I utilize my incubator a lot, whether it's for a dry skin to get animals to defecate or respiratory infections. I take the animal. I stick it in a 16-quart container with damp paper towel. It's now 100% humidity. It's now pinned at 85 to 86 degrees, which is very high, and I understand that. But I'm telling you, 75% of the time, within 24 hours, the animal's clicking will completely stop, and usually by 48 hours, it's completely gone. Um, I wrote something about this on my website, and people were asking me about it, and um, I just can't stress it enough. It works. If you get a respiratory infection, have your incubator set up, and Marsh, you were mentioned before about, you know, maybe jacking up the temperature for a couple degrees. And, I mean, that could work. But, you know, if you're in a rack system and you're, temp- you're cranking your temp up a little bit, it's just still inconsistent. You know, with a nighttime drop, it's still not going to hold a constant temperature. And I think that's why it's important to use the incubator. It's just that constant temperature, 85, 86 degrees, and, um, you know, 100% humidity, 24 for eight hours. And it's basically a nebulization chamber is what it turns into. And it just works. And if that doesn't work, then I would say go the opposite. Stick the animal back in the incubator, 85, 86 degrees, but this time completely dry it out. No humidity whatsoever. And one of those two things, you'll, you will be amazed that, you, you know, it's going to be gone. Um, now, I know with nidovirus, I mean, that's, you know, scary stuff. And I'm not saying you should not take your animals to vets. I'm only saying your first plan of attack, if you have an animal that's slight clicking or you're seeing, you know, you know when your animal's off and there's a start of a respiratory infection, try this first, and I think you'll be pleasantly surprised. So um, that's that's what I do for respiratories. Nice. Very yeah, good. I've heard I've heard that before, Gary. Yeah, I've heard that, and uh, you got a lot of a lot of positive feedback about that when you yeah. you know posted it up in the past. Yeah. Well, you know, I, it's so funny when we were talking earlier about helping people out, you know, some people uh, made some comments about, you know, you should still take your animal to a vet. It's um, Look, uh, you guys know me. I mean, I, I've spent a lot of money at vets with animals in the past. I, I'll be the first guy to take an animal to a vet. Um, but the reality is, um, like I said earlier, uh, as, as these, these drugs are just not meant for, I'm not saying any snake to a vet, you know, ball pythons, carpets, whatever, maybe you'll have good results. But 
Um, you guys have all taken vets, chondros to vets, I'm sure. Marshall, I know you have, and, um, you know, I hope you had great results. But in my, you know, and I've had some pre-qualified vets, and I just not had good results. So I said, man, i gotta, I got to come up with something else, and this has been really effective for me. And I just hope you guys, uh, I don't hope you don't have to do it, but if you do get a, you know, slight onset of an RI, just have the incubator going and try it, and I think you'll be, like I said, I think you'll be pretty surprised. So. Buddy, what uh, what are your thoughts? Yeah, well, um, yeah, I wish I could say I'd never had our eyes, Gary. I truly do. Um, yeah, there was too. a great period in my in my uh, state keeping career where I didn't have our eyes, and that was before Condros. Um, <laughs> and <laughs> uh, it, it was now that I look back on it, it was a golden era. Um, and then I started keeping Condros, and I. Uh, experienced respiratory infections and um i've done you know some things to how i manage them um i've done you know i've taken things to the vet i've done i've done cultures and make sure that the antibiotic was appropriate and i've had a snake you know i've had the snakes die i've i've also you know had an ri and i've taken my snake to the vet and my vet said well i gave you some you know enough antibiotics so you should just use that with this animal too and that animal lived um, so I'm not going to say you shouldn't use a vet and I'm not going to say that you shouldn't use a vet but I will say that your experience level with keeping the animals may maybe be a factor in how you manage that animal so if you've never had a respiratory infection before you know you may need to seek out a, I guess a, a qualified vet to kind of help you manage the care of course with no guarantees um, and, you know, if you have a lot of experience with it, you know, you may be comfortable managing it on your own. I will say that, um, you know, for me, uh, I believe a lot of my husbandries were definitely my fault, husbandry-related. I, you know, kept chondros pretty much like I'd kept all the other species of pythons I'd kept previously, uh, pretty much following the same temperature regime that I was using a different substrate, and I sprayed heavily, and, um, you know, I I, list, I had a, I guess the the change in my husbandry protocol was uh, Terry Phillip did a pretty, uh, I thought at least groundbreaking for me, interview on Morelia Python Radio, and he talked about how he kept his chondros, and he did everything the exact opposite that I did, and I reached out <laughs> to Terry and said, you know, I... I can't do everything you're doing, but, you know, I do have what I feel is a high occurrence of respiratory infections. And, you know, after listening to the your information, I think, you know, I think it's I've got to do the changes. I don't think it's the snakes. I think it's actually me and how I'm doing things. And so we, we talked a bit, and Terry was very gracious with his time, and, he helped me work out what he thought would work, and um, I made those changes. And uh, you know, I, I will say, fortunately for me, my rate of respiratory infections has went down significantly. Um, but you know, how I manage it depends on the severity. If it's a like Gary said, like if it's a small click um, or an animal that's normally you know rot, you know, you know your animals after all. You know what's normal with them. Yeah. If it's just not right, then I, yeah. I will do the the kind of the palliative care that, that Gary does where, you know, 
put them in an incubator, put them in the incubator for, you know, 24, 48 hours. And um, I have had that work before. And what I've also had other animals are, you know, they're blowing the bubbles. And, of course, you know, my concern is, you know, keeping that animal from contaminating other things. So I usually do reach out to my vet. Um, And I I normally do go in just to culture to kind of make sure that it's, you know, not something out of the normal. Um, and I I could tell you that, you know, when I do send an animal for culture, it, it normally comes back positive for pseudomonas and, and those type yeah. things. Um, so, you know, it's just kind of, all for, you know, for me it's kind of a, um, I guess, just kind of puts things in, in my mind at ease. Yeah, it's a common uh bacteria that we're dealing with and it's not you know not something that's you know completely off the wall um which we kind of i guess anyone deals with these animals you kind of you know things go bad and you start imagining the worst case scenarios of what you could have um so it's kind of you know put your minds at ease but you know that that's kind of, uh, kind of handle them um i also have a nebulizer it works really well um my uh one reptile vet that i used uh uh, will give me a, some uh, essentially a mucinex for chondros or snakes, um, and it does work really, really well for for helping these animals uh, break up their mucus because you know they don't have the ability to cough like you or I do, and and so you know sometimes things just sit there and they can't get it out. Um, so he taught me. Uh, protocol that I thought was very interesting, which was to actually soak the snake, um, and then while they're being soaked, nebulize them at the same time with this medication. And it, the first time I did, I thought I actually killed the snake because I wanted, opened up the tub and I saw the the amount of mucus that had been expressed by this animal. Wow. Um, but that wow. animal, you know, recovered okay. recovered pretty well, um, and uh, you know, never had another issue with it. So uh, they're definitely, you know some things you can do that are kind of like palliative care uh, for an animal that, that's ill. That it doesn't necessarily, you know, have to go the antibiotic route. Yeah. You know, I like what you said, buddy. It's, you know, you bring an animal in to get, you know, if I try this in the incubator and, I, and it didn't clear up, yeah, just for peace of mind, you want to bring it into the vet for a culture. Um, and then as you touched on, when you get the culture done, it tells you the sensitivities and it, and it tells you which antibiotics you use. And that's, that's where I go back to the same issues. Like, uh, I know it's going to be one of the, one of the, you know, three, three regular lineup, right? The amicacin, Batril, or Fortas. But, uh, right. anyway, yeah, I was, you know, but I think that's, this is where we all have a long way to go with the, uh, I think we have, um, you know the breeding down and the hatching eggs and getting babies started. But I think as far as when there, when there is an issue, hopefully we can you know make some major strides here in the next few years about figuring out how to take care of them. So preventing, I should say. Right. Yep. I agree. I agree. It's it's a learning process. I mean, if you know, for me, if I thought I knew everything about these animals and I thought I was doing everything 100% correct. Um, yeah. I guess a lot of the challenge wouldn't be there for me, and it would kind of be boring. Um, you know, not well, that I want to yeah. see snakes absolutely. Have, yeah, snakes true. have problems, um, but you know, you know, it, it is part of you know, at least for me, it's it's part of the part of the the hobby the allure, is, you know, yeah. figuring out yeah, these absolutely. animals. Yep, absolutely. Being able Chondros, to like, you know, figure out what's going on. 
Yeah. Right. That's that's why they're you know they're not as readily available. That's why the prices are high. Chondros, emeralds. It's that's the reality of it, right? So, the one thing I'll I'll pass on to everybody is that. Um, you know, whenever my vet comes here, the one thing he's always on me about is air ventilation to help prevention of any, you know, RIs. He's all about air ventilation. And so I have a fan going in my room now just for circulation of air. I leave my snake room open during the day, which I never used to do. I used to keep it closed. So um, what's the long-term effects of doing that, helpful or not? I have no idea. But, um, you know, I know the importance of air ventilation and preventing just stale air within, you know, a 24-inch cube is just a lot of stagnant air in there, even despite having uh, ventilation ports, right? So, um, yep. again, it's just all about prevention, trying different things. So that's what I have now going in my room as a fan. So I've never had that before. Hmm. Hmm. Good stuff, gentlemen. Yeah. Good stuff. Yep, same, yep. same way. I, I I've got say... a fan. Sorry, go ahead, go Marshall. No, go ahead for it. Uh, I was going to say, I've, I've got a fan in the room that uh, uh, I've actually got uh, most of the uh, caging that I have uh, purchased has been, you know, kind of just readily available commercially produced caging and al- almost always have to tape up uh, some of the vents just to keep, um, keep them from having too much ventilation. But... Uh, you definitely want them to be able to, I think the old rule used to be that, you know, you, you want to mist and you'd want them, want them kind of completely dry out within 24 hours. And uh, um, you just got to kind of experiment with your cages and your fan and where you put it in the room and all that kind of stuff um, to kind of get that dialed in. I've got some cages that are right in the, you know, line of where the, the fan blows. Obviously those dry out faster. Um and, you know, for whatever reason, just whatever way the air circulates around my room, I've got a few levels in a rack that's totally across the room from the fan, not even in the, you know, direct line of the fan, but the way the air goes around the room, those tubs dry out pretty fast. Uh, but I agree with Gary that that um, fresh air is really important. Fresh air and fresh water. Yep. That's it. It's funny how they go right to the cold water when you give it to them, right? You always feel bad. It's like, wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I love watching them drink. Yeah. I, th- I, You know, one of the things that's always interesting to me is that, um, you know, growing up in this hobby in the 80s and 90s, um, you were left on your own to kind of figure out things. Um you know, there were people you could reach out to and talk to over the phone, or if you're lucky enough, you could go visit and see how they did things. Um, but I guess one of the, the challenging things for me at this point in the hobby um, is that people kind of expect, uh, they have the expectation that they if they get an animal from you that they're never, ever going to have a problem or they're going to have to, maybe apply some critical thinking to their keeping skills to understand what's going on and maybe why something isn't working for them. And um, if, and so they're, it's like almost, they, it's almost to me as though they don't want to be challenged or if, it, if it's not super easy and the gratification is an instant, they don't want to work towards, 
you know, figuring out a problem or coming up with a solution. And, you know, I struggle with that on, you know, regularly for, for keepers that um, when they present problems to me, I, you know, try to steer them in a direction but not give them the answer so that maybe they can, you know, put two and two together themselves and come up with the answer. Um, you guys have have similar situations, or have you guys run into that with uh, newer keepers? No, all my customers are awesome, buddy. What's the next question? <laughs> Gary doesn't offer customer support, so no, I, I don't even get my phone number no, out. No experience with <laughs> this. But Bill, don't worry, Bill gives it out to everybody. Absolutely. <laughs> Yeah, I think this all goes back to being crotchety old men, buddy, right? Um, yeah, I don't know. I, 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 the only thing I can say is I get people who IM me all the time. Um, and the people I know, I don't mind, right? I'll, I'll always be respectful and answer them. But I, I, I always get the IMs that there's not even my name address. It's like we're best friends. It's just like, hey, what do you think of so-and-so, you know? And I just start, I don't even answer them. I used to always worry about what people thought, and I, I just don't even answer stuff like that anymore. So, um <laughs> Yeah, I think it's just, a, I don't know, I have, I have no other comment. <laughs> well, there's no there's comment. A fine line between, well, know, I mean, I, I, fine, I have nothing nice to say. Well, there's a fine line between customer service and solving every single person's chondro issues out there, yeah. you know, for, for the entirety of lifespan of the animal. You know, there, there's, there's, a, there's a line there, and I think everybody's line is, is drawn differently depending on how much time you have and how much patience you have. Um, but, you know, that's just an individual decision, I think. Yeah. Marshall, how do you deal with handling people? <laughs> um, well, you know. Um, Give them Gary's number. Back, but yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, no, back, uh, back when I first, you know, kind of was, was, was into it and um, kind of getting things started and, you know, didn't have a, a, a much responsibility at work and family. I was a lot more involved in, in trying to help people. And, and I still do, you know, I get uh, people on, um, on Instagram hitting, hitting me up all the time, asking questions. And it's like Buddy said, you know, a lot of people just want to want you to give them the answer and, you know, it is a bit aggravating when um, somebody, you know, DMs me or whatever, and they 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 say, "Hey, what what kind of cage should I get?" You know, and it's like, you know, have you have you done any research at all? Um, but, you know, to, to to me, I'd be much happier answering the question of, "Hey, what do you think about you know this cage or that cage?" Or I've thought about it, and you know, just have a have a question that that you know leads me to believe you've at least tried to answer it on your own um but but yeah there there's definitely a lot of that of people just want you to give them the answer and the fact is you really can't i mean nobody can um what what works great for me in my room and my situation and you know where i have my fan in my room it's probably not going to be the same for you um so you're going to have to kind of do a little bit of trial and error exactly 
know, I, I try to put myself in the position of, of newer keepers, and I get it. It's stressful and everything, but I really do think that probably 75% of all questions can be answered by the person asking the question. You're just looking for that extra little security blanket, you know. But, um, yeah, good point. You know, good point. I always just think it's ironic that Marshall literally got me on Facebook about, I don't know, six, seven years ago now. He's the one who, because I had asked him, I showed him a picture of something, and he, he shamed me. He's like, yeah, I saw this on Facebook like six months ago. I'm like, well, I'm not on Facebook. He said, well, you got to get on Facebook. All I know is I got on Facebook and Marshall disappeared. So, I'm pretty sure I'm the one that got you on Facebook, Gary. Uh, I honestly, maybe you helped me with it, but Marshall, I specifically remember I saw something and I sent him a text and a picture and he goes, dude, I, yeah, I saw that he had posted that all over Facebook like a while ago. I'm like, you serious? Cause dude, you got to get on Facebook for selling animals and everything. I'm like, all right. And then literally, like I told you, I, I never oh, okay. see on Facebook anymore. Yeah, he doesn't even answer my IMs. Oh, yeah, no, I've, I've really just tried to get, to get involved more so in the group setting than on my own you know my own i guess it was i don't know how long i've had my own facebook you know separate page for the reptiles and instagram and and all that but you know for a while there it was uh uh before that it was you know my my facebook feed was full of just you know random snake pictures from people i didn't even hardly know so i set up the you know set up the the um uh, uh reptiles page and uh, join the groups, and that's really how I like to, you know, interact more so than, um, you know, necessarily being friends with with people that I don't, you know, really don't know you outside don't know. of snakes. Right. Um, you know, otherwise your your, your Facebook just is, is that's all that's all it's about. And plus, you know, nobody wants to see pictures of my kids and that kind of stuff. Uh, so you're right. not really missing much on my personal Facebook. Marshall, do you still have your website? I don't. No, I, I haven't. Uh, I haven't had it for I don't know. God, it's been a long time. Um, it's just been uh, you know. I guess I've been been fortunate in that I've been um, able to you know kind of keep things going with just Facebook and Instagram. Um, it, they, nice. just, they just make it so easy, you know. Uh, right. I feel like I probably should have a website, you know, maybe um, for a lot of people that uh, probably turns them off to maybe buying an animal from me or, or whatever. But, um, you know, it, to, to me at this point where, I, where I'm at in, in, in life and, you know, having a family and all that, it's really just a time thing for me. I've only got X amount of time that I can, um, you know, that could be snake time, that whether that be... Right. Yeah, and there's there's other priorities in life, and uh, um, so, you know. My daughter wouldn't recognize me in a police lineup. I'm always in my snake room, so I can't relate to her. <laughs> Come on, Gary. <laughs> you'd, be, you'd be the... Sh- You'd be the short, red-headed guy in the lineup. I'm not short, Bill. I'm 5'10". I'm just short compared to you guys. Stop it. I'm going to get started. I don't know. Leonard said you that, were short. Uh, he referred to you as short. Ian, oh, Leonard Ian said he was six short. Five. My God. Oh, my God. I'm, he's 6'5", for Christ's sake. Yeah. <laughs> 
Um, but Marshall, you know what? You do have a big responsibility in the community in the sense that you're the guy with the albino chondra. That's a big deal. And, uh, you know, so know. keeping people that posted on that is serious. That's, uh, yeah, that's a big deal. And, and uh, so hopefully you'll keep everybody uh, posted on that because, you know, the folks in the past who've owned albino chondras uh, pretty much, they, you know, disappeared and never really they, kept yeah, anybody. Yeah, they, they, uh, they killed them. Yeah, me, me well, included. <laughs> yeah, I know. They disappeared. I know. I know. So, but Lisa uh, came out and said it died. I give you a lot of credit, you know. Well, you know, it, it's been at this point. Uh, I, I'm not going to give up on the project. I've, I've been, I've been, uh, and it's been so long. Um, I've definitely got the animals to, you know, hopefully, uh, hopefully we'll see, we'll see another one uh, one of these days. But uh, you know, what, what's been cool about that project is, fortunately, Versace's got great genetics, despite the. Uh, in, in spite of the albino thing, and what's cool about it is the, the animals that he's produced have been, you know, really nice animals, regardless of whether they ended up yeah. being albino or not. So that's that's kind of made yeah, the project, uh, you know, a little bit more bearable with the uh, uh, setbacks um, with the, with the actual albinos, you know. Marshall, what's your time commitment right. with this project? Uh, geez, that's a good question. It started, uh, it started for me back in, I got Versace. He, he is a, I think he's a 2000 or 2001, uh, offspring from Trooper. And I, I fortunately had picked him up, uh, from Trooper prior to, uh, Damon hatching his albino. And, uh, as soon as he hatched it and he, you know, kind of posted all the details about it, I knew that um, Versace's dad, the trooper had, was a sibling to Damon's albino. So, I mean, immediately a light went off and I was like, holy shit, I've got a possible head. And, uh, you know, 11 years later, um, I, I produced, you know, an albino from it. And I think the first the first year I produced two and uh, a red and a yellow, and um, they were both, you know, shitty feeders, and uh, I think the, the, they lived maybe six or eight months, um, not very long. That was 2013, if I'm not mistaken, and then 2014 had another clutch, uh, produced uh, one more, um, and that one went on to live, uh, become almost two years old, and then it uh, had some sort of a digestive problem. Um, you know, it developed a, had it out, had a shed one day and I was, had it out to take pictures of it and it had this huge, uh, not huge, but, you know, pretty large, uh, a bulge about you know, halfway down the body, took it to the vet. She said that she thought it was, uh, maybe like a mouse bone or mouse claw that had stuck in the intestine. And apparently when, uh, snakes, uh, the way they deal with something like that is they don't, you know, they kind of the, the skin kind of grows around it. They they tend to to wall it off the way she explained it to me, um, and you know that that growth in the intestinal tract could have served as you know some some sort of like a almost think of it as like a hook that you know catches things as it goes that you know doesn't let things go go past or they snag on it. And uh, anyway, 
that's uh, so lost her to that one uh, to that, and then uh, hatched another one maybe the following year, six, 15 or 16, I can't remember, but it, it was a runt. It didn't end up living, you know, past, uh, I think that one maybe lasted a week. And then, um, so anyway, you know, who, who knows if it's uh, really the albino gene itself. It's just kind of, you know, that they're all, all going to be doomed or if it's just been, you know, it's just been bad luck. My, my personal thought is that it's just been bad luck, but, you know, obviously I'm, I'm biased and I've got, you know, a lot invested in it time-wise, but, uh, you know, it's like everything else, time will tell. Right. I give you such credit, credit to Marshall, for 11 years. That's pretty awesome to stick with it, you know. I mean, that's yeah. patient. It's uh, pretty awesome. Yeah, and that's one of the things you got to have. Uh, if experience yeah. has taught me anything with, uh, with green trees is nothing happens fast. And uh, you got to be you got to be patient. Yeah. I don't know about you guys now, but I'm at the point where you know, listen, we're not old, but we're not young. And I think, well, like I'm 50 years old, and I go, geez, I hatched this baby out, and I go to breed it. That's another four to five years in my life. It's like, wow, each, you know, I'm starting to do the math. Mm-hmm. It's like, wow, it's the, uh, yep. you know, basic. Never thought about oh, that yeah. before. So. Yeah. All right, gentlemen, we've gone well over our two hours of a lot of time. So I think we should dismiss all parties and thank them for their their time and their and their knowledge and everything that they've uh, done and, and come on to the stuff we've discussed. Absolutely. Well, thanks for thanks for having us, guys. It's quite a lot of fun. It was great yeah, great likewise. Three of you. So. Um, Thanks for having have me. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully, Mark. Anytime. Hopefully, uh, yeah. hopefully, some people got some good info out of it. Yeah, yeah no I'm, doubt. I'm pretty I, sure I they did. did. Yep. All right, guys. We'll have a great night, and thanks again for having me. And we'll talk soon. Yep. Thank you, guys. Yep. All take right, care, guys. For, for making the show. Right. Yep. All right. Take care. All right. Bye. 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 All right, buddy, another good episode. Yeah, excellent episode. A little long for us, huh? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, definitely. We rarely uh, we rarely hit our two-hour mark, much less go over 30 minutes yeah. or so. Gotcha. Okay. All right. Well, All right. it was a good good so, first show of the year. Yeah. Uh, I guess uh, we'll Absolutely. do another one in three or four months, huh? <laughs> Maybe June or July. <laughs> <laughs> no way. We've we got to keep Eric and Owen happy. Man. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we'll get one up in February. All right. Yep, buddy. absolutely. All right. Um, all right. Good, good night, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. It's uh, been a great show, and uh, stay tuned for the next episode of GTP Keeper Radio. Have a good night.